Jesus, Namaste, and Shalom. Everybody out there in Cleveland, I am the Beyond Top Secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan Podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, and all subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond a Top Secret Texan Podcast. In a letter posted to UFOevidence.org on March 14, 2015, a female witness described the strange event that happened while driving with a friend to Virginia Beach. It was 1986. The witness, Tina, then 32, was employed at the club campground resort in Lake Gaston in Emporia, Virginia, during the week. She had rented a small lake house for her job, though on the weekends, she would drive to Virginia Beach to stay with her mother. Another girl, Sandra, 34, who rented a room in the same lake house and who worked with Tina at the club, would also visit her mother in Virginia Beach and would accompany Tina on the trips. On this night, it was summertime. Tina and Sandra had packed their weekend bags as they had done so many times before and headed out, leaving Lake Gaston after they got off work. I was driving. We were not drinking or on drugs or anything like that. Totally clear-headed. I remember we got to the main traffic light right in Emporia during rush hour. It was right at 5 p.m. and still daylight. The radio was on and we were talking about getting there right at the rush hour. Next thing I know, I felt like I just snapped out of a sleep or something. And my hands were still on the wheel and the car was moving. But we were a few miles outside of Emporia on Highway 58, the far end of town, maybe a 15 or 20 minute drive away. It was where we would have been headed, but we were just there. I had no idea how we got there. I thought for a minute it was one of those things where you drive out of habit and don't remember, but it was pitch black and the radio was on. It said it was around 9 p.m. I was so stunned I could barely grasp it. I asked Sandra something to the effect of, what the heck just happened? I asked her if she knew what I was talking about, and she seemed as stunned as I was. She said, yes, yes. She seemed to be in shock, too. I asked her what time it was, and she said, no, it was 5 o'clock. What happened? Why are we here? She was totally on the same page. I pulled off the road, and we were totally freaked out. We both only remember being at the light at rush hour, 5 p.m. daylight, and we both experienced the same thing. All of a sudden, we are 10 miles or so on the other side of Emporia, 
on the dark road, Highway 58, and it was three or four hours later. We looked out the window. There was a dark field out there. We were shaking and scared. The two women began pondering aloud if it was possible that they were involved in some kind of abduction for which they could not remember. We both could only think of an abduction of some sort. It seemed crazy, but had no recollection of the time that was missing. She wondered if maybe someone wanted her because she had worked for NASA. We agreed, for some unknown reason, now looking back, never to speak of this to anyone. We were scared to death. We just were sure they would put us in a mental ward if we told anyone our crazy story. We thought it was crazy, too. We got back to Virginia Beach at about midnight, and when I dropped her off, we swore to secrecy. I remember asking her when I picked her up on Sunday night to go back to Gaston if she had said anything, and she said absolutely not. I said, me neither. I don't remember if we ever talked about it again. In fact, I don't remember much about her after that. I don't think it was too much longer before I left Lake Gaston forever. I never spoke of it at all until maybe 10 years or so ago. After Tina moved to New Jersey, where she landed a job at another resort, she and Sandra lost touch. For some odd reason, Tina absolutely could not remember Sandra's last name, even though they were quite close. I lost track of Sandra. I have racked my brain trying to remember her last name, but cannot. It's strange because I usually remember everybody, friends from grade school, high school, college, and later. She worked and lived with me, but I cannot remember her last name. Tina is convinced something very strange happened to her and Sandra that night in 1986, though Tina admits that they never observed a craft of any kind. She did find it curious that she grew up in a military family while Sandra was formerly employed by NASA for at least five years. Did this in any way play a role in what happened that night? Had they been chosen? I'm sure some skeptics will suggest that both Tina and Sandra were slipped something prior to leaving Gaston Lake. Though if this was the case, how could it be that neither woman remembered even a second in the missing three to four hours? Also, how could Tina continue to operate a vehicle seemingly without incident had she been slipped something? Surely it would have impaired her driving somewhat, especially if it's strong enough to wipe out their memories. In the years that followed, Tina came to find out that there had been a rash of UFO sightings in Emporia and nearby Suffolk that same summer. I found this case to be interesting and it reminded me of another case I would like to discuss. The reasons for me talking about it will become clear. The witness, a man who went by the initials JD, who currently resides in Sacramento, California, related his story on the Coast to Coast radio show back in 2015, a story that involved an aircraft carrier-sized UFO, a possible abduction, missing time, the Oz effect, and even a vanishing implant. I will try to relay his story as he told it to the best of my ability. It was the summer of 1966, Castro Valley, California. JD and his then-girlfriend, whom he would later marry, were prowling the back hills looking for a place to park so they could do the things most young people do when alone in a parked car. It was somewhere between 11.30 and 12 o'clock at night. As they pulled into an area not far from a small lake, they observed an object that was flashing illuminations of red, 
green and blue. They both took notice of it and proceeded to watch it for nearly an hour as they sat chatting. Neither could figure out what type of craft it was. Now what was highly unusual about this is everything I'm about to describe. This spanned from, if you're familiar with the geographical location of Castro Valley area, it spans from the freeway to the end of, there's a lake called Lake Shabbat. The city is closer in between where it was sitting and where we were viewing it about three miles away. Above the craft itself was a cloud layer only above it. The craft, we tried to get a measurement. My uncle is an engineer that helped design the hospital that was in between the site of the actual craft and us. The hospital is approximately 10 stories high. If you turn the hospital to its side long ways, it was longer than six of those distances between one end and the other. JD claims that as they watched the craft, a little red dot would appear on one edge of the craft and go across the base where they could see it, and then it would disappear and reappear on the other end of the craft at infrequent speed and time. After studying the object for an hour, the pair became curious. They decided to drive down to get a better look at it. I did want to get to that location. I did want to get a better look, but I didn't want to come directly underneath it so I thought I would try to drive a little closer to the side of this thing. We drove across the freeway, which we had to do to get down past the Valley Boulevard to get to that specific area. And 11 o'clock at night in the summertime, you have kids cruising up and down the strip in their hot rods. I used to do the same thing. But on that particular night, as we crossed the freeway, there was no cars whatsoever on the freeway anywhere. Now this is the weekend. J.D. and his girlfriend drove across and eventually came up on it. This would set into motion a series of strange and frightening events. Their evening of fun would turn into sheer terror. We drove right on up to the craft. We could actually see it above us. We drove to the edge of it, but the girlfriend at the time who ended up being my wife, she was talking to me and all of a sudden there was a sound that came from inside the car. We rolled down the windows to make sure we had good air circulation. It was nothing to do with the car. She stopped in the middle of what she was saying, and I couldn't wake her, but I continued driving up, closer to the end of this craft. It was gigantic, but as I got closer to this craft, the car started to slow down. The engine started to slow down, and I accelerated, and it still kept slowing down. Then I started hearing this loud frequency emitting from the center of the car outward. I couldn't wake my girlfriend at that time. We headed on up and I almost felt like the energy from the top of my head was being drawn out, just drained. I tried to shake myself, make sure I was seeing what I was seeing, doing what I was doing, and I checked the car to make sure it was still slowing down. I couldn't believe what happened. I turned the car around. I could still see this huge craft. We head back down the hill and then all of a sudden my girlfriend woke up and was in the middle of the same conversation. We headed back down into Castro Valley Boulevard. The craft was gone. All of a sudden everybody's cruising down on the strip. The lights are on. People are driving on the freeway as usual. Now this is the unusual part. Immediately she was shocked. I thought we were going up. How did we turn around? When we got back down to the road, she came instantly too, back in her conversation when she stopped. 
J.D. claims that as they came down the hill, he felt his consciousness slipping away, and he had to fight to maintain it in order to get them away from the crowd. He did not see it depart. Another thing, later that night, she couldn't sleep, and I was, I was fine, but she couldn't sleep. She was agitated. She was very irritable. She had this lump on her arm that was bulging out of her arm. Now here's what really got me. I took a needle, I sanitized it, and I pricked it with the needle. I pulled this metallic object about a quarter of an inch out of her skin. I checked it out with some tweezers, and it was held together. What it looked like was a very miniature Sputnik. You remember that? All these metallic hairs were still under her skin. I pulled it all out, and she... she almost panicked. At the time, J.D.'s father worked for NASA, and he thought it would be best to send the object to him. He felt that his father might have a better understanding of what they were dealing with. They placed it into an envelope and sealed it. Strangely, when they woke the next morning, the object inside the envelope had disappeared completely. We both placed it inside the sealed envelope, but when we woke up the next morning, the object wasn't there. First of all, the envelope was still sealed. We opened it up and it was gone. It was no longer inside. About a week later, J.D. returned to the location where they had observed the craft. He found the area was close to the public, which he found strange. About a mile away was a satellite tracking station, so J.D. went there and asked them some questions. Like, had they seen any odd activity in the area in the past few weeks? A manager came out to speak to J.D. He seemed interested, though J.D. was reluctant to delve too deeply into his sighting. The manager directed him to the South Bay, Moffat Field, insisting that he speak to some authorities. He even wrote it down for him, though J.D. ultimately never bothered. Curiously, J.D., despite marrying her, acknowledged that there was a very noticeable change in his wife's personality after the object was removed from her arm. Once a very gentle, kind woman, she eventually turned violent and angry, and they soon divorced. Regarding the night of their sighting, J.D. noted that his wife was insistent that she was conscious throughout the experience, though she could not understand how the car got turned around. To this day, she swears she never passed out. She swears we never even got to the top of the mountain. Now me, I believe I had gotten to the top, and before I lost consciousness, I turned the vehicle around and started driving right back down, and then she woke up. So therefore, if she believed that she was never up there, Jimmy Church, who was hosting that evening, cut him off, wondering aloud that if, since his wife was certain she never passed out, was it also possible that J.D., who did not recall passing out, may have indeed become unconscious at some point and just wasn't aware of it? Was it possible that both J.D. and his wife had become unconscious for a period of time or possibly taken aboard the craft? According to J.D., in the weeks that followed, Large pad marks were found in the park where the craft was sighted. The park was closed and the area was examined by some officials, though J.D. was uncertain who those officials were. Photographs of the marks were taken, marks that seemed to indicate that something very heavy had settled down in the park. J.D. had seen at least one of the photos, though he did not indicate how he was allowed access to them. Was it in the local paper? Sadly, there were no other eyewitnesses to the event, and J.D. and his wife were reluctant to talk about it for many years. One aspect of this case I found interesting was the way in which the lights 
are seemingly used to draw the attention of the couple, almost hypnotizing them to come closer. It's almost like a moth to a flame. As they crossed the normally busy street, both JD and his girlfriend found it strange that there was no traffic at all. The area should have been bustling. It was a weekend, and teenagers should have been racing up and down the strip. But there was nothing. How could this be possible? Upon approaching the craft, J.D. indicates hearing strange noises, at which point his girlfriend seemed to black out mid-sentence. Later, upon regaining consciousness, the girlfriend picked up her speech exactly where she left off, as if there was no lapse in time from one word to the next. J.D. himself felt as though his energy was being sucked out through his head, at which point he began to frantically check to see if the object was real, if his car was still slowing down as if his brain needed some reassurance that what was happening was really happening. He does not recall blacking out, though, as Church pointed out, neither did his girlfriend, though she did indeed seem to black out, so did he also? Upon moving away from the craft, they noted that the traffic seemed to return to the boulevard, as if somebody had flipped a switch allowing reality as they knew it to return. Upon arriving home, the pair discovered a strange object buried in the girlfriend's skin, an object that seemed to vanish with no explanation. This is common in many abduction cases, also in fairy lore. It's as if some cosmic force had stepped in to remove from existence any evidence that may have been left behind that could prove without a doubt that these things are real. It's a curious other detail that J.D.'s father worked for NASA, not unlike the girl from the first story. I spoke to Albert Rosales about this, and he did indeed confirm that there seems to be a large number of cases involving people who work for NASA, or who have family members who do. Not sure what it means, but it's an interesting little detail. Getting back to the Castro Valley case, if the area was indeed closed for a period of time afterwards, and landing marks were found and examined, it does suggest that somebody else, somebody in a position of power, was aware of the UFO that came down in the Castro Valley that summer evening in 1966. In 1990, Frank Sikora, a noted civil rights historian and a writer for the Birmingham News, dedicated a column to Cynthia Vadovaz, a then 28-year-old woman, and her bizarre story of UFOs and alien abduction. Sikora spoke to Vadovaz by telephone, a lengthy interview in which she described in detail the events that befell her and her mother one chilly night in October 1973. For many years I didn't know what had happened, only that I had been troubled by something, she told Sikora. At the time, Cynthia was only 12 years old. She and her mother had just left their home in Morris and were heading to a dance class in Birmingham. It was dark out at this point, they were driving along US 31 near Gardendale 
when Cynthia looked out the window of the car and observed something peculiar in the night sky. She described it as, quote, big and round and bright green. There was also a yellow ring around it. She could see it coming over the trees, and it stayed alongside them as they moved down the road. It was concerning enough that Cynthia's mother asked, Is it going to land? They were now just north of Gardendale when the object began to descend directly in front of them. To their horror, the car they were driving in suddenly stalled as it neared an intersection. Cynthia looked around and noticed that several other cars had also stopped. The object kept coming down and seemed to stop near the wires. It seemed bigger than a plane. My mother rolled down the window, which really upset me. I thought I was going to run. In the car next to me was a man whose face was lit up. He was leaning over toward us. Mother asked the man, Do you think it's a UFO? And he said, I guess so. Cynthia next recalled that she began to feel heavy. At the same moment, a bright light shone into their car. She was now unable to move, apparently paralyzed by something. That's it. That's her last memory. The very next thing she could recall was sitting in the car, her feet in her mother's lap. The car door slammed on her back, which seemed to wake both Cynthia and her mother up at the same time. Cynthia looked over as her mother frantically attempted to start the car. They carried on moving down US-31, eventually arriving at the dance class. They were some 40 minutes late. A little disturbed by what had happened, Cynthia's mother called her father, Irvin Vadovaz, who worked with the Federal Aviation Administration in Birmingham. He immediately dismissed the object as a rocket being test-fired by the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. The following year, the family moved to Washington. Later, Cynthia moved to Los Angeles to pursue her interest in dance. But she was bothered by the incident in Gardendale. She simply could not let it go. And in 1986, she met with Dr. Richard Neal, an obstetrician-gynecologist who also worked as a hypnotist. Given the nature of her abduction, Bud Hopkins, a noted ufologist who was at the forefront of abduction research, also took an interest and assisted with the case. During her sessions, Cynthia slowly began to fill in the details of what happened that night near Gardendale, the night she and her mother blacked out after seeing a UFO. The story she would tell would be absolutely astonishing. Upon being hypnotized, Cynthia was brought back to that night. She recalled being inside the car, looking up at the object. She then noticed that as they approached the intersection, she could see numerous cars stopped. She initially assumed that there had been an accident, which was why, she thought, so many cars were just sitting there not moving. It was like mayhem, as people in the cars ahead of them were screaming and putting their arms out the window. 
she could make out that something tall, thin, and apparently humanoid was walking down the road in between the cars. As the figure passed by the cars, the people inside seemed to become subdued, as if placed in a trance. As the strange figure drew closer to Cynthia's car, she looked over and saw her mother rest her head on the door as if falling asleep. This is when Cynthia claims that three small, whitish-looking beings came up to her door and opened it. They reached inside to grab her. Terrified, Cynthia attempted to hold on to the air conditioner vents, but they broke as she was pulled out. She next recalled being floated into the object. The interior of the craft was bright white. She was placed onto a table inside a room. She could see that there was another young girl laying on a separate table. She had kind of sandy curly hair, and she was in the same predicament as me, Cynthia told Sikora. She could see the beings walking around the table, performing some kind of examination. At some point, the beings inserted a needle into Cynthia's navel. Sometime after this, Cynthia claims that she was placed into what she could only describe as a transparent globe and then floated back into her mother's car. Upon getting placed inside the vehicle, the door of the car was slammed on her back. This is the moment that she and her mother seemed to awaken from their trance-like state. Apparently the object was now gone and the cars around them began rumbling to life as if everyone had come out of it at the same time. Cynthia, her mother, and the others carried on with what they were doing, seemingly having no memory of what had happened. I've always wondered whether anyone else remembers anything happening there that night, near Gardendale, she told Sakura. She added that sometime after her sighting, her father had received a call from a man who said he was an Air Force colonel, who told him that he had seen a UFO. The father had not been able to track him down. Jeff Ballard, then the state director of the Mutual UFO Network, was hoping that by Cynthia coming forward with her story to the press, they might be able to track down other people who might have been on US-31 that night in October 1973. It is unclear if anyone ever did come forward, as I could find no follow-up. 1973 was a big year for ufologists and paranormal enthusiasts. It has been nicknamed the Year of the Humanoids due to the sheer number of alien encounter cases that were logged. There was even a book written about it. That year also saw an uptick in Bigfoot reports, haunted house cases, poltergeist activity, weird creature sightings, and MIBs were everywhere. It was a wild year. Cynthia's case, even without the added abduction aspect, is extraordinary as it highlights the sheer boldness of the visitors that they were willing to make themselves known in order to take two girls. This runs contrary to the vast majority of cases in which the visitors make every effort to stay hidden. What was it about Cynthia and the other girl that so interested these beings that they were willing to literally stop traffic to take them? 
why go to all the trouble to follow them, stall the cars, place the drivers into a trance-like state, all just to snatch a couple of young girls for a round of examinations. It's baffling. On the evening of January 21, 1977, Air Flight 132 rolled down the runway at El Dorado Airport in Bogota, Colombia, and was lifting skyward within a matter of seconds. As Captain Gustavo Ferreira eased off on the throttles of his Boeing 727 jet, he could see the lights of Bogota below and to his left. He retracted the leading edge flaps, and his aircraft responded, smoothly climbing to 20,000 feet. Directly ahead of him, the pitch-black night sky was dusted with brilliant stars, and the night was calm. It was expected to be a smooth and routine flight to Pereira, and his eyes expertly scanned the cluster of instruments in front of him. Little did he know that far off in the distance, an uninvited guest would soon make its appearance known. As he looked out the cockpit window, he spotted an extremely bright light in the distance, which seemed to be on a collision course with his aircraft. Unknown to him, at that precise moment, four miles below, a veteran air traffic controller was tracking the same thing. George J. Jimenez, the controller, could not understand what he was seeing initially. There was the familiar blip of Flight 132 easing its way across the screen on course, when suddenly he noticed a blip three times the size of the airliner zigzagging all over the screen at speeds in excess of 20,000 miles per hour. Back in the sky over Columbia, it was now 9 p.m. local time, when Captain Ferreira caught sight of the strange object. His immediate reaction was to alert the other members of his cockpit crew and verify the sighting. Everyone on board saw the same thing. At that point, the co-pilot, Pedro Tapias, radioed Bogota Control Center to advise them that something was on a collision course with their plane. Bogota Control replied that although they could not identify any aircraft in that area, they were indeed tracking a huge object zigzagging at a tremendous rate of speed. They asked the crew for a description. The crew radioed back, We are seeing a very brilliant white light. At times it is stationary, and at other times it is moving. At that precise moment, Captain Ferreira switched on his landing lights and the mysterious object changed to a bright red. The captain then decided to switch off his lights and then turn them on again, and the UFO this time flashed back with green lights, as if acknowledging the pilot's signal. After this brief exchange, Ferreira and the object signaling to each other, <coughs> the UFO, or its pilot, seemingly understood. It immediately made an effort to get out of the Boeing's way turning and speeding off towards the south where it eventually disappeared from view. The radar observer confirmed that the huge blip had suddenly executed a 90-degree turn and sped off the scope. When Captain Ferrer was interviewed by the press, he explained that in all of his 22 years of flying, he had never seen anything like it, 
and that although he had always doubted the existence of UFOs, he could no longer deny their reality. Regardless of where you come down on the UFO debate, something very real happened on that night. The cockpit crew, including two stewardess and most of the passengers, did indeed see something and were willing to attest to that fact. The object was also seen by ground crew and was witnessed by professionals on radar. Unless all the people involved had previously arranged to perpetrate a hoax, which is highly unlikely, the Ferreira case should go down as one of the best UFO pilot encounter cases on record. If you spend time scouring old UFO magazines and newsletters, you will find scores of odd, obscure cases that seemingly nobody has heard about. Cases that stand out as ultra-weird, but receive very little attention beyond a brief write-up in one of those often-defunct publications. In this video, I decided to dust off some of these oddities and present them to you guys. Join me as I delve into obscure but true UFO cases. Beginning in 1959, a strange elliptical shaped object was observed hovering stationary in the air above the Fleetwood Elementary School in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. Why it was there nobody knew, but it showed up six nights in a row and was seen by school children and at least one adult. On the evening of November 23, 1962, at around 10.30 p.m., it returned, and soon the locals were chattering about it. School student Miles White and his mother and Miles' friend Mike Williams had heard about it and decided to walk over to the school on the evening of Friday, November 30, 1962. They wondered if the object would return and it did. A shining object with a bluish light which appeared in the sky hovering briefly over the school's bell tower. Then it was gone. On Saturday, December 1st, Miles and his mother returned to the school at 9 o'clock and again saw it hovering, this time over the schoolyard about 20 feet off the ground. It appeared to be almost transparent or ghost-like they actually referred to it as a, quote, sky ghost. It was close enough to them that they decided to pick up some stones and toss them at the object. They threw stones at it, and after about twice the time expected for the stones to fall to the ground, they were heard falling on the roof of the one-story school annex building behind their backs in the opposite direction to which they were thrown. The object soon departed and Miles and his mother returned home. Later, an excited Miles spoke to Mike and the pair decided to go see a late movie. During the show, Mike noted that Miles' speech became slurred, didn't make any sense, and he actually fell asleep during the movie. 
Miles had complained earlier of feeling a, quote, buzzing in the head. It seems that something else might have happened to Miles and his mother at that school year. The story originally appeared in some local area newspapers. The boys, as well as Mrs. White, were reluctant to talk of their experiences, fearing ridicule. APRO investigator W.K. Allen reached out to Mike and Miles and interviewed them about the case. When Miles and his mother tossed the stones at the object, they noted that there was no impact and that the stones did not fall to the ground as expected. Rather, the stones seemed swallowed up by something, which then spit them out a few moments later behind them in an area contrary to the stones' expected trajectories. It was almost as if the object passed through a portal which opened in front of them and behind them. When they tossed the stones, they entered the portal only to be expelled out the other side, which was behind the pair, almost like the stones had teleported. On May 3, 1967, at around 6.30 a.m., Mrs. Ruth S. Smith was driving westbound on the Schuylkill Expressway approximately six miles out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and she noticed an object a little above and ahead of her car. There had been rain when she left the city, but it had stopped and there was a heavy overcast. Smith was following a diesel-powered Greyhound moving van, traveling at about 58 to 60 miles per hour. She said the object, a dish-shaped thing, which was a gunmetal gray color, with a darker gray band around the division between the top and the bottom, seemed to be following the moving van. She noted that the top section of the craft appeared to be revolving, as if on a central axis, and around the darker band was a row of, quote, unlighted porthole sort of windows. There was no light emanating from nor surrounding the craft. Using telephone poles for comparison, Smith estimated the craft was pacing the moving van at about 65 to 70 miles per hour and was no more than 150 feet in the air. It appeared to be 35 to 40 feet in diameter and about 20 feet thick. There were no visible wings or fins, but a thin stream of vapor issued from a sort of exhaust pipe. It was solid and metallic in appearance. The driver dropped back in order to see it better, and all of a sudden the stream of vapor changed to cherry red sparks, and the object shot straight up into the overcast and disappeared from sight. At the moment the vapor changed to sparks, Smith claimed that she got, quote, the worst toothache she has ever had in her life. A few seconds after the object disappeared, the toothache went away. Smith spoke to an investigator with APRO, who noted that when asked about the toothache, she described that the entire upper right side of her jaw ached, but one spot was worse than the other. It was a place where there was no tooth. The craft was like nothing I have ever seen in the air or on the ground, and I shall never forget it. I must know where it came from, and why it was here, who or what was operating it, Smith noted. A man, Bradley, no last name was provided, 
claimed to have had a bizarre experience with beings that left him minus a tooth. He claims that while visiting Moberly, Missouri, he encountered some strange people that he was certain were not human. They somewhat resembled the gray type beings we are all so familiar with, large heads, large eyes, etc. Curiously, a few years later, around May 2012, Bradley was at his home in Columbia, Missouri, talking to his mother about the figures he encountered in Moberly. At the time, he was suffering with a severe toothache, and he jokingly told his mother that he wished that the beings would come and remove the wisdom tooth, causing him so much discomfort. And apparently they heard him. According to Bradley, a couple of days after telling his mother this, at about 4 o'clock in the morning, he was sitting outside in his backyard taking in the night air. He noted that it was cloudy, but he could see the moon above the trees. In the blink of an eye, everything suddenly got brighter. He looked up and noticed that the once overcast sky was now almost entirely clear. Then something caught his eye. He looked up and there was a big bright light, maybe 300 feet off the ground, moving directly away from him. It was moving back up into one of the few remaining clouds. Bradley looked back into the field behind his home and observed that the entire field was lit up, though he could not determine a source. The light above soon receded completely into the clouds and disappeared, and the field again went completely dark. The next day Bradley realized that his wisdom tooth was gone, and he had no explanation for how as he had not felt it come out on its own. When your wisdom teeth have been impacted for years, you know when one is gone. I realized that I, in that second when everything got brighter, I realized I must have lost a few minutes of time or something. I think that is what must have happened. The idea of advanced beings coming down and extracting a man's tooth at his supposed request seems utterly ludicrous, but who knows? Preston Dennett, in his book UFO Healings, lists hundreds of such cases of ETs healing people. It is possible that the man's tooth fell out naturally, or was knocked out without him realizing, and that he has signed an extraterrestrial link, but who knows. On August 7, 1967, Dr. Luis Sanchez Vega a well-known general practitioner in Caracas, Venezuela, received a visit from an odd patient. A figure less than four feet tall had apparently strolled into his office. The story, as told by Vega, was that this little man, he was reluctant to call him that, had appeared in his office and the doctor had no idea how he got in. He spoke perfect Spanish and requested a physical examination. He then told Vega not to be surprised at his abnormally high temperature as he was, quote, not from Earth. The doctor could tell just from his appearance that he was not some deformed person or something like that. Whatever this thing was, it was not human. The figure had a large round head, large round eyes, no ears or even ear holes, a slit-like mouth and very strange teeth. He had a total of ten teeth, five above and five below. The little man told Vega that his name was, quote, Astro, and that he came from another planet. 
that he and his kind learned languages with the use of a machine, that their reproduction was not like that of earth beings, and he had no parents. He also claimed that the earth had undergone a cataclysmic change some 9,000 years ago, and that if people weren't careful, one could be caused again. He spoke specifically of a fissure running under the Sea of Caracas, which would, in time, collapse, causing great disaster. Vega performed a very brief examination, noting that his lung capacity was normal and his pulse rate was incredibly slow. As the figure left in front of other people and the doctor, he proceeded to levitate a pencil before vanishing in plain sight. Almost immediately after, Vega suffered a heart attack, which he would later claim was brought on by the strange encounter. Vega's brother, Julio, eventually leaked his story to the press. UFO investigator Carlos Castillo would later interview Vega about the curious incident, though he did not provide any more details about the strange event beyond what was already known. It is unclear why an extraterrestrial being with all their advances in science and medicine would need to visit an earthly doctor. I doubt his visit had anything to do with the medical checkup and more to do with being alone with the doctor, possibly to conduct his own experiment or examination. I do wonder if something else occurred in that office beyond the brief exam and chatter about past and future events. Is it just a coincidence that this man suffered a heart attack after the visit, or was that the objective? I have heard of other stories and even had one sent to me personally, in which people have claimed to have seen strange beings in hospital waiting rooms, but this is probably one of the most bizarre. This being not only appeared in a doctor's office, revealed itself, allowed itself to be examined, and levitated an object before vanishing in front of other witnesses, suggesting it did not care about hiding its reality, which goes against the norms of most ET behavior. Either he was really bold or simply didn't care about any fallout, either from his kind or ours. But again, why? What was the point? What was he trying to accomplish? In October 1991, in North Caucasus, Russia, a witness awoke to the strange sight of her TV lit up. On the screen there was a black and white image of a bald, thin man with large eyes. As if it was the most natural thing in the world, the man in the TV began to ask the witness a series of questions, which she calmly answered. The witness noted that it was odd, though she felt no fear and her reactions were not typical of a person confronted with the realization that a man in their TV was talking to them. Remember, this was 1991, years before two-way video chats would become a reality. When the screen went out, she laid back in the bed and fell into a heavy sleep. In the morning, upon waking, she realized that the TV was not even on. Her husband, who slept through the entire event, confirmed that in the evening he himself had pulled the cord out of the socket. The witness lived on the fourth floor in a five-story building. Two months later in December, two human-like figures entered her bedroom from the balcony. They ordered her to turn on the nightlight. They covered her legs with a blanket and lit up the left side of her abdomen with a red light. 
what came next was like something out of a science fiction movie. The witness raised up and watched as one of the men stretched out his hand, noting his skin was gray, and with two fingers very methodically severed her skin in the area. He then inserted a tube that he had taken from his breast pocket, and suddenly a dark green liquid began to flow through the tube into a flask at the other end. Having filled the flask halfway, they removed the tube and illuminated the area with a purple light. There was no scar visible after the incident. She then heard the two men speak to each other. One of the entities said, Pancreas, these are the diseases on earth. Then she watched them leave and noticed that they wore high boots, gray suits, and had hands with only two fingers. She could not see any facial features. At the very door of the balcony, one looked back, shook one of his fingers at her, and said, Do not eat late at night. It destroys you. When they left, the clock read 3.20 a.m., and the door of the balcony was closed. After the incident, she felt pain on her left side and suffered from headaches. It is not entirely clear what the beings extracted from her, though it is interesting in that they seem to want to warn her about eating late at night. And also they mention the pancreas. I wonder if they are in their own way referring to diabetes. Vladimir G. Azaz, Ph.D., wrote of the case in the Russian publication Libma. He does not state whether or not the witness herself suffered from diabetes, and if she did, had they cured her. Possibly they were warning her of what might come if she did not change her lifestyle and eating choices. Who knows? It is interesting to think that beings from some other galaxy or dimension might be interested in what we humans are choosing to eat and how we choose to live our lives. This final case can be found in the declassified British Royal Air Force files. The report refers to the main witness as a spinster. She was a middle-aged woman who had lived in the small village of Avebury in England all of her adult life, and who was fascinated by archaeological history. She spent many a night strolling among Avebury's famous Stonehenge-like formations, marveling at their design. On September 15, 1962, something very frightening played out, and she had a front-row seat for it. On that night, she had been out walking when she observed a small ball of light, perhaps two feet in diameter, gliding slowly through the stones. She recognized instantly that this was no conventional object that she was aware of. Transfixed and rooted to the spot, she watched as it closed in on her at a height of about 12 feet. The ball then stopped 15 feet or so from her and small amounts of what looked like liquid metal slowly and silently dripped from it to the ground. Then in an instant, the ball exploded in a bright white flash. For a brief moment, she was blinded by its intensity. She dropped to her knees. When her eyes cleared, however, she was faced with a horrific sight. The ball of light had gone, but on the ground in front of her, was what she could only describe as a monstrous, writhing worm. The creature, the woman noted, was about five feet long, perhaps eight to nine inches thick, and its skin was milk white. 
As the witness slowly rose to her feet, the creature's head turned suddenly in her direction, and two bulging eyes opened. When it began to move unsteadily towards her in a caterpillar-like fashion, she emitted a hysterical scream and fled the scene. Rushing back home, she slammed the door shut and frantically called the airbase after having been directed to them by less-than-impressed police officers. The Royal Air Force's Provost and Security Services dispatched officers early the next day to interview the woman. Some officers found it to be a joke, though others found her to be entirely credible, and they wondered what exactly happened that night. Had she really encountered a giant caterpillar from space? While some might scoff at this account, it should be noted that a similar massive caterpillar was observed in 1994 in Ashland, Oregon. The primary witness noted that it seemed to behave not unlike a dogwood with an owner, excitedly circling the being's feet. The account was detailed in Tom Lyon's UFO Frightening Encounters, Volume 3. Anyway, that's this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed. The Return Man The Rhinebeck Incident Thanks to the tireless work of David Politis and Steph Young, we've all become aware of the reality that people in surprising numbers are vanishing from our world's forests, as well as more urban settings. Sometimes they are brought back. Oftentimes they are dumped like trash into lakes and waterways. And sometimes they are never seen again. In issue 201 of UFO Navigator, setting a Saporophy newspaper, written by one Yakov Ivanov, Mikhail Gerstein described a very bizarre event that was said to have occurred in the Ukraine in August 1980, involving the discovery of a man who had previously gone missing. The account is both intriguing and frightening, and offers a possible explanation for what might be happening to those people going missing. Join me as I look into the strange case of the returned man. At the southern tip of the Kotisha Island in Zaporovy in Ukraine, the naked body of a man was discovered. Police and medical staff who arrived on the scene found that the body lacked a pulse and seemed not to be breathing. By all indicators, this man, whoever he was, was dead. From there, the body was driven to the local morgue, while officers investigated the location hoping to dig up clues on who he was and how he ended up there. The autopsy pathologist was overwhelmingly surprised when an incision in the abdomen revealed that the man's internal organs were frozen and even icicles had formed in the liver area. Remember, this was in the summer, in the middle of a heat wave. A council of doctors was urgently called, who decided to leave the body in a room with a constant plus 7 degrees Celsius, giving the opportunity for the internal organs to slowly defrost. Twelve hours later, an absolute medical miracle began to play out. The heart of the dead patient suddenly began to pump again. This shocked the doctors. Gradually, the person began to come to his senses and at the same time sweated profusely. <coughs> Sweat literally streamed down his body. 
taken in for analysis, scientists found it had a high nitrogen content. Suddenly the man opened his eyes and introduced himself as Nikolai. The first thing he did was ask for a drink. He then consumed nearly three full liters of water. The doctors and scientists were completely at a loss. After waking up, the man asked, Where am I? He was told that he was in a hospital in Zaporophy. And one of the doctors jokingly added that the day was August 14, 1980. Nikolai was shocked and confused. It made no sense to him. He then went on to explain to the doctors, in absolute seriousness, that he was a resident of the Aparinka farm in the Rostov region, and that on the evening of July 5, 1971, he had gone for a night swim in the Savrisky Donitz River. As he swam, he claims he saw a beam of light come down from the sky. It struck him, and he suddenly felt cold, and the sensation that he had been forcefully plucked out of the lake and sucked upwards into something in the sky. His next memory was of being in some kind of cell with a porthole window. The very last thing he remembered was seeing the planet Earth receding as he, inside the cell, moved away from it, further into space. It started to get colder and colder and soon Nikolai lost consciousness. That was it. He could not recall anything else. It felt to him that he had only been unconscious for a few minutes when he woke up in the hospital though a whopping nine years had passed. From this point, the story takes an even stranger turn. As doctors, still surprised by the astonishingly impossible nature of his recovery, began to wonder if Nikolai was indeed telling the truth. Had he been snatched out of the water like a fish by visitors from space? Or was he simply crazy? Nikolai was temporarily placed in a mental hospital. Officers with the KGB apparently had asked the staff to remain quiet while they investigated the circumstances of the case. It turned out that a person with such credentials as Nikolai had actually disappeared in 1971. His wife had reported him missing after he left to go swim in the Saversky Donitz River and never returned home. He was never seen again and his family deemed that he had most likely drowned and the body not recovered for whatever reason. When shown his photograph, both the wife and the parents recognized him as Nikolai. Sadly, this is where the case seemed to end. According to Gerstein, there was no follow-up in the newspaper, and despite the shocking aspects of his recovery, nothing more came of it. In principle, it is possible to pump glucose into human tissue, then freeze it to a state of clinical death, and then try, slowly warming up the body, to try to bring it back to life but only theoretically. Typically, such a high level of glucose in the body would inevitably bring death to the person. But in this case, if true, some kind of advanced process or technology seemed to make it a reality. A case of suspended animation lasting years and a seeming recovery free of organ damage or ill effects of any kind. Medical miracle aside, this case is absolutely fascinating. The prospect that the visitors could snatch a person out of a lake and keep them aboard their craft in a state of suspended animation for nine years is really quite frightening, though it does bring to mind other cases we've all heard about, in which people go missing for days or weeks only to turn up miles away with no memory of how they got there. 
On February 7, 2018, Toronto firefighter Danny Filipitas vanished from Whiteface Mountain in Lake Placid, New York, where he had been skiing with some friends. Somehow he ended up in Sacramento, California, with almost no memory of how he got there. The doctors believe that Danny had suffered a head injury which caused amnesia, and then somehow via some lucky Good Samaritans, he forced gumped his way nearly 3,000 miles away. Strangely, the police have not been able to track down any of these Good Samaritans. For his part, Nikolai had absolutely no idea that he had been gone that long. To him, it was only a few minutes between seeing the light and waking up in the hospital, as if he formed no memories in the space of time in between, and if he did, they were somehow erased. This case was forwarded to me by Albert Rosales some months ago, and I debated on whether or not I should present it. I decided to just go with it and let you guys figure out if you want to believe it or not. A young girl is playing in the yard with her cousin. They take notice of a strange object in the sky. It has a black lens which they become transfixed by. In their minds they hear, look at the camera, look at the camera. This would set into motion a series of weird events that left the witness wondering about what really happened to her more than 20 years later. Join me as I delve into the Ryan Beck incident. Over the years, I have read a lot of accounts of people who describe feeling as though they've had their picture taken, though nobody is around. I even covered such an incident in a previous video, a story featured in 40 in Times, in which a woman standing in her kitchen observed a flash, and she had the sense that somebody had taken her picture, though she could not figure out how. Sometimes a flash is involved, sometimes not. For me, one of the most interesting cases involving a witness feeling as though they've had their picture taken happened in Rhinebeck, New York in 1957, mainly because the witness described hearing in her mind the words, look at the camera, look at the camera. Her encounter, as detailed in the 1979 issue of Timothy Green Beckley's UFO Review newsletter, is fascinating and creepy, as it suggests that our neighbors from beyond might not just be visiting us, but possibly documenting our existence. The woman, identified by Beckley as simply Tina M., claims it all started on Sunday, November 3, 1957. At the time, she was 11 years old. She and her parents were visiting some relatives at their Rhinebeck, New York home. The house was quite isolated and surrounded by lots of woods. While the adults sat inside, Tina and her cousin, who was nine years old, had gone into the backyard to play. It was around one in the afternoon, and both had just eaten lunch and were feeling restless. It was chilly, and the sky had that cloudy, gray overcast. Tina recalls looking up and noticing something that looked like a dark, thin line sweep across the sky from the southeast to the northwest. She asked her cousin if he had seen the strange sight, and he indicated that he hadn't. They continued playing. A few minutes later, it was the cousin's turn to see something. He promptly told Tina to look to the south, an area with some tall trees. Tina peered over and observed what he was looking at. High up above the trees, a small, round-looking object appeared to be drifting northward. It cleared the trees and then began drifting downward. Tina claims that they became very excited 
and both of them assumed that they were looking at the recently launched Sputnik satellite. The thought that it could be something otherworldly never crossed their mind. They cheered and waved at the object. Both cousins wished that it would come down and land next to where they were, and to their amazement the object seemed to hear them and began moving towards them. They watched as it drifted down, light as a balloon, over a gully, nearby to a point that was not more than 15 to 20 feet from where they were standing. Tina felt that, given how isolated her cousin's home was, and where the object was hovering, nobody else could probably see it. It then drifted directly towards them, eventually coming to a complete stop, slightly higher than their line of vision. It was no more than 15 feet from where they were standing. She noted that the object was a small, gray, dull, metallic cylinder. It appeared to be about two feet long. The center part of the cylinder was thicker, making it look like a barrel. On one end of the cylinder were three or four small bent legs, joined together with strips of metal. She did not notice any kind of writing or emblem on the object, and she admits that she looked very carefully, trying to find something to indicate where it had come from. There was absolutely no noise coming from the object, which was in an upright position. Then the object tipped on its side. She could now make out the sound of a motor running. Now on its side, Tini could see one end, which appeared to be a very black lens with no reflection of light. It was facing directly at Tina and her cousin. My cousin and I were, of course, very excited, jumping up and down, waving and begging it to come down to earth. We looked at this object, and the more we looked at it, at least I did anyway, the more we became drawn to the black lens. I remember there seemed to be something in my head that said, Look at the camera, over and over, Tina recalled. They became very still. The object remained in this position for a few moments, as if taking their picture. Then they heard the small motor noise, and it tipped upward and started floating up and away toward the north, looking as light as a balloon. I must say that this sighting definitely happened, and was as real as any everyday experience. However, what I will also relate to you next seems more like a remembered fantasy or the memory of a dream, but since I have recently read stories of other UFO abductees, I have come to accept this memory and think that it did actually happen. Tina believes that while they stood looking at the cylinder, they became hypnotized by the black lens. Within minutes of the object departing, three short, all-white human-like figures came out from behind two sheds in the backyard. Tina claims they were made to follow them to the area behind and between the sheds, where a small saucer-shaped object was sitting. They entered the craft, which Tina noted had more rooms inside than what appeared on the outside, as if the interior was larger than the craft's exterior would suggest. They were brought into one of these rooms, had their clothes removed, and then made to lay side by side on a table. These white figures then performed a type of medical examination on them, which Tina found to be quite frightening. There was another figure there, she recalled, who appeared to be a sort of bronze color, he had a very powerful type of aura around him, which Tina likened to a, quote, force field. After the examination, which Tina knows she was unconscious for part of it, they were redressed. 
Tina recalls that she and her cousin, apparently unfazed by the experience, began asking the bronze-colored being questions, including whether or not they could be given a ride in their spaceship. The bronze figure spoke to them, saying, No, not now, but there will be a time in the future when we will come and take you to a place very far away. He had named a year, but Tina could never remember it. Tina then asked that if they were to come and take her, could her mother come too? We will see, the entity replied. After this, the three all-white beings led them back outside, past the sheds to the spot where they had seen the cylinder originally. It had apparently returned and was hovering there in the sky. The three whitish beings retreated to their saucer-shaped craft. The two children came awake just in time to see the cylinder zip away into the sky. Tina did not indicate how much time had passed between the initial sighting and them being returned. In speaking to Timothy Green Beckley, Tina described the most amazing and frightening aspect of the encounter. These beings had great power over humans. They could levitate people, hold them down physically, and control their actions, and even their thoughts. We had no power to resist what these beings wanted to do. Because of this experience, I have mixed feelings of dread and expectation about the future, and I hardly know what to do about them. My cousin who had this experience with me says he does not remember it, and will not talk about anything of this nature since he is very conventionally religious. In any case, since this happened in 1957, my family and I have had numerous UFO sightings and strange experiences, as have many people in our town of Hyde Park. Tina's experience began with the sighting of the cylinder, one with the black lens. In her mind, she was told to look at the camera over and over, and she did sense that the mysterious object had indeed taken their photograph. But why? Why would these entities want to take the photograph of kids playing in a backyard? It leads me to a bigger question. Is it possible that these entities floating about in our skies might actually be engaged in not only surveillance, but documentation of our existence. It's fun to think that these creatures might actually be archivists, maintaining a documented record of everything happening on this planet since its earliest times. Some abductees have claimed as such that they were shown important events in history that seem like actual recordings of the event rather than possible reenactments. Tina is certain that much more happened to her and her cousin aboard the craft than what she can consciously recall though her memories of the examination and her discussion with the bronze creature are interesting, especially since they promised to return at a later date and take them far away. Why was she able to recall the events, while her cousin did not remember any of it? It is curious that he refuses to speak of it. It's possible that he does remember it and simply cannot deal with its implications in a religious context. Tina remembered the entities only by their color indicating that they appeared human, though the original three appeared all white while the one conducting the examination appeared bronze. Minus a few moments during the examination, Tina did not indicate that the experience frightened her, though I sense that this has something to do with their being in a trance-like state throughout much of the episode. It is unclear if the beings ever make good on their promise to return. As far as I know, Beckley never followed up on the case in a later issue, so we can only wonder. 
Anyway, that's the episode. I hope you enjoyed. In the 1960s and 70s, author John Keel published a series of books as well as a newsletter that seemed to posit a link between UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, and the various other unexplained mysteries, as if they were part and parcel of the same thing. Anyone who spends any amount of time studying Fortean literature will begin to see a lot of crossover with regards to cases noting Bigfoot and Big Cat sightings in areas with a lot of UFO activity, cryptid encounters leading to hauntings, etc. No better such example of this crossover phenomenon comes to mind than what happened over a two-year span, beginning in 1967 to residents living in Scotia, New York, a case that involved UFOs, the men in black, missing animals, a dead teenager, and even poltergeist activity. Join me as I delve into Mystery on the Mohawk River. Beginning in mid-1967, Jennifer Stevens, a UFO investigator living in Scotia, New York, started receiving letters from people living around the Mohawk River with regards to strange things that were occurring. Stevens was the director of the Extraterrestrial Phenomenon Investigating Committee, or EPIC, she also worked as the editor and publisher of UFO Skywatch magazine. It makes sense that she and her family would be the ones to become so immersed in the events to follow. The first report happened in April 1967, when a woman was walking her visiting friend out to her car at around 11 o'clock at night. A very large bright star caught their attention as they stood talking. As they watched, the star began to descend rapidly. In a matter of seconds, it was hovering above the trees right across the street from them. They were both a little fascinated and somewhat afraid. As they began to question each other about what they thought it was, suddenly a barbell-sized projectile that one of them later described as, quote, an ugly red color, shot from the UFO and went whizzing over their heads and disappeared into the trees across the street. With that, the UFO shot away at a tremendous rate of speed. One of the women, Peggy G, was still puzzling over the experience the next morning when a neighbor dropped in, remarking, The strangest thing happened last night. Johnny, her 12-year-old son, got up to go to the bathroom at about 11 and rushed into my room all upset because he said he saw a ball of fire go by the bathroom window. Not long after, Peggy reached out to Stevens, who noted that she was very nervous and would not even provide her name. Peggy was deeply troubled and needed to discuss what she and her friend had seen. Another six weeks would pass before Stevens received a second call from Peggy. This time she agreed to give her full name, as well as consent to an interview. And what a story she had to tell. Peggy, a government worker, described how prior to her sighting, 
Many of her neighbors had reported that their dogs had gone missing. One neighbor was certain that she had seen, quote, little men making off with her dog one evening. A number of them had also reported seeing strange lights and objects hovering over their houses. Also, immediately after her sighting, Peggy described how she began experiencing a type of poltergeist activity in her home. She had seen the shadow of a man materialize and then disappear on several occasions. And she had also seen objects in the house moving, apparently by themselves. Her cat would hiss and arch its back at nothing. Though the strangest part of the story was yet to come, during the Christmas holidays, Peggy, in hopes of earning some spending money, took a job moonlighting as a security guard with a large discount store. Not long after starting, a man employed there as a security guard began paying her a lot of attention, often asking her out for coffee. She would only refer to him as Mr. X and noted he seemed, quote, old and yet young at the same time. There was something very odd about this man. He would often steer their conversation towards the topic of UFOs, asserting that he was a member of some type of cosmic brotherhood, essentially intimating that he was himself one of the visitors. Peggy humored him, questioning him about his past and various aspects of his supposed Space Brothers affiliation. He told her that he had worked many jobs in his life, including being a professor at a well-known college. Stevens, in her follow-up investigation, found there was no record of such a person having been employed by the college. He insisted that he was extremely old, and if he told Peggy how old, quote, you'd never believe me. One of Peggy's co-workers found Mr. X's stories to be utterly preposterous and called him out to his face, telling him that he was spewing hogwash. This is when things took a sinister turn, as Mr. X looked at the co-worker and said, If you don't get away from here and forget what you've heard, I'll turn myself into the most horrible thing you've ever seen. At this point, Peggy swears that something truly bizarre occurred, and she actually had trouble describing it. Mr. X's eyes appeared to light up, which caused the co-worker to retreat in fright. Shortly after Peggy quit her job, she never saw Mr. X again. Stevens did manage to confirm that this person, Mr. X, had worked at the store at the time Peggy did, though he had subsequently moved on. All other attempts at tracking him down or finding evidence of previous employment proved futile. He seems to have appeared for a little while from nowhere, and returned to the same place, Stevens noted. Sadly, not long after, Peggy suffered a nervous breakdown, and her family felt it best to have her placed in a mental hospital for a period of observation. Stevens wondered if she was suffering from some type of mental illness all along, or had the strange events she experienced somehow caused it. Stevens did manage to confirm many aspects of her story, including the missing dogs, the UFO sighting, and the co-worker, though she wasn't sure, and she decided that it was best to put the whole thing behind her. Though that all changed one night in February 1968, when Jennifer received a phone call from a young boy, this phone call would change her life and place her at the center of a truly frightening UFO event. Stevens had taken the call 
the boy was from the same area that Peggy lived. He told her that he and a friend had been packing snow on the riverbank to make a sort of slide so that their toboggan could zip out onto the then-frozen Mohawk River. It was getting dark, and as the boys turned to go home, they saw, rising from behind some bushes on an island in the river, a small, glowing fireball, which hovered for some moments before disappearing. Then one of the boys spotted what appeared to be a figure wearing a white suit lurking behind one of the bushes, watching them. He told the other boy, which sent them both screaming for home, running as fast as they could. Once there, they told their parents, who then got in touch with Stevens. Stevens thought it interesting and filed it away. It wasn't until a few hours later that the importance of that phone call would become clear. The next morning, approximately 300 yards from where the fireball was sighted, a 16-year-old boy was found dead. Authorities discovered his body was frozen deeply into the ice. It had been relatively mild, and yet this boy was frozen solid, which the investigators found to be quite strange. The authorities ultimately deemed it death due to exposure. They were unable to explain why his tracks showed that he had apparently been running, then dragging one foot as if being pulled from above. There were no other tracks. Stevens found the whole thing quite bizarre. She wondered if, had he chosen to stop, why not under a tree? Why out on some frozen ice? Why were his tracks so strange? It was about 24 hours later before she was told she could go discreetly into the area and examine the tracks herself and take Geiger counter readings. She noted the tracks came down the bank into the river, then there's running and then dragging, leading to that grim melted circle in the ice where the boy's body had been found. The Geiger counter readings showed nothing but normal background radiation. The tracks indicated that he was running from something and then somehow was being pulled up into the sky, hence his one foot seemingly dragging. If he was being chased by another person or an animal, most assuredly they would have found their tracks too, but there was nothing, just the boy walking, apparently seeing something, running, getting pulled up, and then death. Stevens managed to track down the two people who found the body, a pair of young boys, they told Stevens that when they saw him and approached him, they could see that he had a, quote, real scared look on his face. Stevens wondered if there was somehow a connection between the UFO sighted that night and the death of this young boy. She had heard cases of people being frightened to death, and this boy did have a history of rheumatic heart. She wondered if he also saw the same UFO witnessed by the two tobogganers and collapsed and died due to fright. That still didn't explain the state he was in when they found the body, nor did it explain the dragging marks. The coroner's verdict was that he had died of exposure, but Jennifer sensed that there was more to the story, and she was determined to find out what that was. I couldn't very well start yelling UFO murder, not unless I wanted to end up where the lady was, who lost her dog, she noted. In the days that followed, Jennifer and the group of UFO investigators she worked with decided to try and patrol the riverbank each night and see if they could get any clues. After several nights of bitter cold, frozen toes and noses, they had a sighting. An oval red object fluttered in silently over the island. It hovered, blinking on and off. 
Jennifer grabbed the big flashlight and signaled back. In a moment, it blinked back. This interchange went on for several minutes, and then the object began to move towards them. The hair began to rise on the back of my neck. Had I done a stupid thing, Jennifer recalled thinking. The group on the bank sensed that they might be in danger, and as they contemplated running back to their vehicles, a big jet suddenly appeared, moving overhead. The UFO did an abrupt about-face and sped away toward the mountains on the other side of the river. Jennifer thought her evening of excitement had come to an end. She was wrong. When she and Peter, her husband, returned home, they found their 15-year-old daughter Jenny in a highly tense state. She told them that the phone had been ringing all evening. She would answer it and hear nothing at the other end but heavy breathing. When her boyfriend called to calm her down, they were interrupted several times by high-pitched beeping noises. On two different occasions, their calls ended abruptly. The next day, the calls continued. Sometimes there would be mechanical sounds. Other times there would be high-pitched whining and a beeping sound that sent sharp pains through their mastoid bones. Jennifer and Peter found this odd as their number was unlisted, so she was certain that whomever had attained it had not gotten it out of the phone book. She called the phone company and they gave their line a complete check with no findings, although the serviceman offered his personal opinion that the line could have been tapped. But by who? Jennifer had not made public any information at the time, so no one except her and her team knew what their suspicions were. Several days after this, Peter, a building contractor, was in a large downtown store inspecting some work his team was doing. He stopped at a snack bar for a cup of coffee. A few moments after, he seated himself, a tall, tan, saturnine-looking man, whom he had never seen before, sat down next to him and began discussing the case, beginning with, there have been people watching the sky every night down by the river in Scotia. Peter was one of those people. He was a little surprised by what the man was saying, wondering how he knew, but he kept his cool. I beg your pardon, he asked the stranger. The man then went on to talk about UFOs. Peter sensed that this fellow knew way too much about what he and his wife were up to and attempted to find out more information on who he was and what he wanted from them. All these questions were either parried or avoided by this stranger. Peter began to feel deeply uncomfortable when the stranger excused himself after noting, People who look for UFOs should be very careful. Thinking back, Jennifer recalled that Peggy had described seeing two dark-skinned men with completely expressionless faces stringing silver tape on the wires near her home. Since they did not have a car with a phone company logo indicating who they worked for, she called the police. The men left before the police arrived, and the only comment made by the officers was, Oh, the silver tape again? At the time, Jennifer thought very little of this story, yet now, with all the things happening with their phone, she began to wonder. Jennifer realized that much of what happened to Peggy was also happening to her, including poltergeist activity. As their phone issues began to lessen, another problem began to manifest. Apparently, their home had become haunted. They began to hear strange noises at all hours of the day and night. Doors would open and close by themselves. 
One evening, a pair of scissors and a brass candlestick jumped off a cabinet and crashed to the floor. Even their Siamese cat was affected, becoming irritable and hissing at nothing. Then, as suddenly as it started, it ceased. During the weeks that followed, Jennifer, her husband, and many of the others who had patrolled the bank found themselves being followed by a light blue Lincoln bearing West Virginia license plates. Then it all stopped. The poltergeist activity, the strange visits by odd people, being followed by cars, it all stopped. Jennifer Stevens eventually published a lengthy article about the strange events titled UFOs Mystery on the Mohawk. It was published in the June 1969 Special Edition 2 of the Flying Saucer Review Beyond Condon. In the article, Jennifer acknowledged that she might be asking for trouble by publishing the piece, but felt that it was important to get the information out to the public. Sadly, two months later, her worst fears became a reality when her husband Peter, still in his 30s, died very suddenly. Anguished, Jennifer completely abandoned the UFO subject. John Keel, who was at the time a friend of Jennifer's, attempted to reach out to her, but he was never able to learn the full circumstances of Peter's death. She would tell me only that it was related to the UFO business in some way, noted Keel. Jennifer Stevens' case is fascinating in that it involves so many aspects of the paranormal overlapping to the point where it's nearly impossible to not conclude that they are all connected in some way. The missing dogs, the UFOs, the dead boy, the strange co-worker with glowing eyes, the figure in white hiding in the bushes by the bank, the MIB visits, the phone calls, and even the poltergeist activity, they all seem to be acting in conjunction with each other to both intrigue and frighten those persons involved. But why? What is the point? Is poltergeist activity somehow connected to the UFO phenomenon? Most people would say no, they are two different things. But this case suggests otherwise, that ghosts and aliens and MIB and everything else are a part of something larger, playing their role in dismantling our sense of what is and isn't possible in this reality. Ultimately, Jennifer Stevens walked away from the UFO subject. Maybe this is what they, the visitors, were trying to accomplish all along or at least after she began to show a deep interest in their activities. Personally, I don't know what to make of this case, and I think that's exactly the way they want it. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed. See you next week. to go on about bravery before I did not know what fear was and now indeed I know what it is it's late in the evening you're driving along heading for home when you spot a light further down the road it's bright and you assume that it's another car you flash your high beams hoping to get its attention but it does not respond as you draw nearer to it you realize that it's not an inconsiderate driver but something out of your scope of understanding. 
There's something there sitting on the road. It does not appear to be of this world. Suddenly your vehicle stalls and strange figures emerge and begin moving in your direction. A game of cat and mouse ensues. Join me as I delve into the strange case of Maximiliano Iglesias Sanchez. Maximilio Iglesias Sanchez was a 21-year-old truck driver living in Leganilla in Spain. He garnered some attention when his story of encountering entities on a road over the course of two evenings was featured in a Spanish magazine. What makes his case so interesting is that it was actually investigated by officers from the Civil Guard who did seem to find some evidence that something strange had landed on the road where Sanchez claimed. Granted, I don't want to get ahead of myself, so let's start at the beginning. It was the night of March 20, 1974. Sanchez, tired from a long day of hauling material, was driving his rig past the village of Hokajo on his way back to his home in Laganilla. He observed a very bright white light further down the road. He estimated that it was about 2,000 feet ahead on the highway. He initially assumed it was another vehicle. He flipped his headlights to high beam several times in hopes of notifying the other driver to dim his own lights. The other driver did not respond and the bright light remained almost blinding in its intensity. It was so brilliant, in fact, that Sanchez was forced to pull his truck to the side of the road. He watched as the bright light suddenly dimmed to about the power of a 50-watt bulb. He thought maybe the other driver had finally figured out what he was signaling, and he decided to carry on driving, heading towards the light. When Sanchez was about 600 feet away, he discovered that the light was not attached to another automobile but rather something very odd. Then, without warning, all the lights on his truck went out and the motor stopped. The area was illuminated only by the now dim light of something that resembled a large disc. Sanchez noted that the object had a metallic structure of either platinum or steel. It seemed quite solid and it had smooth edges without rivets or openings of any kind. It was 30 to 36 feet in diameter and rested about 5 feet off the ground on three round landing pads. It was a light like he'd never seen before, Sanchez noted, adding that it seemed to be uniform on all surfaces of the metallic craft. He continued to examine it and was caught off guard by the realization that there was not one, but two crafts there. Above and about 50 feet to the right of the first was another similar craft. As if from nowhere, two human-like figures appeared in front of the grounded craft. They seemed to move in unison and began motioning to each other, quote, like the tourists do. They looked over at Sanchez and one of the figures pointed at him. With that, one of the humanoids turned around and disappeared to the right of the first object while the others stayed, watching Sanchez. 
After a short wait, the other being returned and stood beside his partner. The two entities looked at each other, then both walked off to the right of the craft out of sight of Sanchez. Then the craft slowly rose in the air with a slight humming sound. Sanchez described the entities as standing about six feet tall and wearing brightly lit, close-fitting coveralls. The material seemed to be made of rubber and had almost the same brilliance as the ship they were standing in front of. It did not seem as though the clothes were reflecting the ship's light, but rather they seemed to be giving off their own light. The figures he noted appeared to be human-like in that the arms and legs seemed proportional to a regular human, and their manner of walking was also, quote, normal, not like that of a robot or how one might expect a visitor from another planet to walk. Sadly, as hard as Sanchez tried, he could not describe their facial features. Granted, the sighting took place at night, and he was never closer than 600 feet to the entities. When the first object reached the altitude of the second object, the two of them remained motionless, hovering in the air. Sanchez decided that he should leave, and this time his truck started back up again without any issues. The lights flickered back to life. He drove down the road a short way, when he suddenly got the feeling that he should stop. He wanted to get another look at them. Sanchez stopped his truck and climbed down from the cab to study them. He noticed that the illuminated ship had dropped down to the site where it had been before. At this point, and for the first time, Sanchez became afraid. An overwhelming sense of fear took hold and he quickly climbed back inside his truck and took off, driving as fast as he could down that stretch of highway. He did not stop his truck again until he reached home. Then, uncharacteristically, he went straight to bed, skipping his dinner. The next morning, Sanchez told the story to his neighbors, but found that they were less than receptive. They simply did not believe his story. He also told some co-workers and discovered that the son of his employer had heard a similar story involving a commercial traveler who encountered a weird object and its strange occupants along a road near Seville. That afternoon, March 21st, Sanchez drove to Pineda to deliver a load of construction material. While there, he stopped in at the home of Anuncia Marino, a girl he had been dating. He told Anuncia and her family what had happened the previous evening, and they took it very seriously, even insisting that he stay at their place overnight and just drive home in the morning. It was getting late, and they felt it would not be safe to drive home down that road after dark. Sanchez elected not to heed their advice, but he probably should have. He began his journey heading back down that same stretch of road in the direction of his home in Laganilla, at about 11.15 p.m., he found himself coming upon the site of the previous night's UFO encounter. Like a repeat of the night before, he again saw a bright light ahead of him. This time he did not think it was the light from a passing vehicle. He knew what it was. He decided to keep going. Even if it was the visitors, he was certain they weren't much interested in him. Had they wanted to do something to him, he reasoned, they would have done it the first night, but they didn't. 
Again, he drove to within about 600 feet of the light. This time, however, he realized that there were three of them. As before, the truck lights went out and the engine quit, this time with a backfire. One of the objects was sitting on the highway, while the other two were just off the road to the right side of Sanchez, one behind the other. All three were illuminated with the same dim light he had observed the previous evening. As he watched, four figures suddenly appeared and walked to the center of the craft resting on the highway. The four looked directly at Sanchez as though studying him. They seemed to be communicating with each other through gestures. The beings pointed at Sanchez, then started walking in his direction. Sanchez immediately sensed that he was in great danger and jumped out of his truck and began running down the road. He peered back and observed that the four figures had increased their pace and appeared to be moving very fast. Sanchez took off across the field and noticed that these figures seemed to be closing the gap between him and them. Sanchez spotted a small ditch filled with mud and he decided to run towards it. He jumped down into the muck and watched as the beings wandered further into the field, past his position. His plan to hide in the ditch seemed to work. He remained perfectly still watching as the beings circled about in the field. Strangely, even though they got to within 50 feet of him, Sanchez still could not make out facial features, a matter that bothered him greatly when he reported the incident. After a short time, the entities seemed to give up and began making their way out of the field, back towards the road. Sanchez waited until everything quieted down and he felt as though it was safe to leave. Not wanting to go back to the road, he began making his way through the fields towards the town of Hokajo. He soon could see the lights of the town off in the distance. He estimated that it was about a mile away. He sat down and smoked a cigarette to calm his nerves. He rested for another ten minutes and then, because he did not want to leave his truck on the road, turned around and headed back. He assumed that enough time had passed and that the visitors would probably be long gone. He was wrong. As he neared his truck, now walking on the road, he could see the three crafts still sitting there. He examined the area and noticed that the figures were no longer around. He thought that they must have returned to their craft. He quietly went back to his truck. He found the door closed. This bothered him. He remembered that he had left it open when he departed earlier. He slowly and cautiously crept up to the door, fearing that one of these figures might be inside, waiting for him. He opened it and discovered that nobody was in the cab. He tried to start the engine but found it still wouldn't work. As he shut the door, the four entities appeared in the middle of the road, as before, gesturing to one another. Sanchez feared that this time, if they wanted to take him, he would not be able to stop them. Strangely, that is not what happened. He watched as the four figures went to the right side of the object parked there, and apparently entered it, just before it climbed to an altitude of about 50 feet. The same low humming sound was heard, but it stopped as soon as the object came to rest, hovering in the sky. Sanchez got the sense that the beings had moved their craft in order to clear the road for him and allow him to pass. They had done it the previous night, 
but it was only now that it really clicked for Sanchez that their craft was somehow interfering with his truck's ability to stay running, and it was required that they manually move their craft for him to keep going. The truck started instantly this time and the lights came on. Sanchez drove away, though his curiosity got the better of him. He did not feel the extreme fear he felt the night before, or even an hour ago. He stopped his truck about 600 feet down the road, climbed down from his cab and began walking back to where the UFOs were. The one that had lifted from the highway to let him pass was once again in place on the asphalt paving. He hid in a clump of bushes about 30 feet away. The four entities had re-emerged from the craft and he could see them wandering around. Sanchez examined the nearest craft to see if he could see some opening in it through which the beings were coming and going but all he could see were unbroken walls. He watched the beings at work. They were using two tools that resembled a horseshoe and the letter T. They inserted the T into the ground at the embankment of the highway. Then they would withdraw the instrument and insert the horseshoe device into the hole. He noted that they did not appear to be taking mineral or vegetation samples. Even at this very close range, Sanchez still could not make out any facial features on the entities. He remained there for about three minutes when that feeling of fear returned. This time it was overwhelming, and despite the fact that the beings never looked in his direction, or even seemed to be aware that he was there, he felt as though he was in great danger. He knew that it was time to leave. He immediately turned and headed back down the road towards his truck. When he reported the incident to his boss the next day, he was advised to contact the Civil Guard, which he did, accompanied by his employer's son. The officer in charge contacted headquarters in Bajar, and after three days an officer arrived and filed a report. Sanchez was interviewed and investigators went to the alleged landing site, where they found some strange tracks. On the highway where the craft was said to have landed, the investigators found a deep, straight groove, as if the asphalt had been scored by a very hard object. On the embankment, the investigators found two scratches that seemed to substantiate Sanchez's story about tools. Sadly, this was all the physical evidence the investigators found to indicate that the craft and its occupants had been there. A few days later, two individuals from Madrid arrived in Laganilla stating that they were UFO investigators. They were equipped with instruments for making tests, including a Geiger counter. The team, trained in such investigative matters, was successful in finding three circles that appeared to have been caused by the craft resting there. The grass was pressed down, but no indentation from the landing gear could be found. Abnormal radioactivity in the area was recorded by the Geiger counter, Curiously, Sanchez added that although his truck started that night, the battery was completely dead the next morning. When he had it recharged, the garage mechanic could detect nothing abnormal about the battery. The strange sightings did not stop there, however. On March 30th, Sanchez was again with his girlfriend in Pineda. It was around 12.45 a.m. when they saw what looked like two large spotlights in the sky at about 2,800 feet. The spots of very bright light were flying over the area, and they gave every indication of being similar to the UFOs witnessed by Sanchez earlier that month. 
The fourth and final sighting took place in early May of the same year, while Sanchez was with his girlfriend and her uncle. They had gone to the city of Salmanaca, his hometown, to take a driving exam. It was around 6.30 a.m. when Anuncia caught sight of a strong white light in the sky, which soon disappeared. A few miles down the road, they saw another bright light. This time it was coming directly toward them at an extremely high rate of speed. Anuncia began to panic, fearing that it was going to slam into them head on. About 300 feet before the impact, the light changed direction, passed over their car and disappeared. It did not return. Sanchez would have no more sightings of UFOs. He gained some level of notoriety when journalist Angel Gomez Escorial wrote of his encounter in the Spanish magazine Black and White. Escorial spoke with Sanchez and found him to be quite believable. Maximiliano Iglesias Sanchez does not seem very imaginative. If he is lying, he does it to perfection, noted Escorial. In a bid to put the whole thing behind him, Sanchez joined the army. Sanchez's case is interesting not only because of what was found during the follow-up investigation, but what transpired during his two encounters. So much of what occurred strikes me as just odd, and it leads me to wonder if Sanchez was really in control of his actions. On both nights, Sanchez managed to get away only to stop and head back. On the second night, he did this twice. Three times if you count the fact that he ended up on the same road the very next night after experiencing what he experienced. While Sanchez indicated fear at various points during the encounter, it seemed to come and go. This seemed to happen whenever he examined the craft and the occupants too intently. He does not say what he saw scared him, only that he was suddenly overcome with fear, as if the thought had been inserted into his mind as a means to shoo him away. I'm not saying that these beings were speaking telepathically, which seems to be the modus operandi of these visitors in most of these cases, as there are aspects of his encounter that suggest otherwise. When he was being chased in the field, he indicated that the visitors actually seemed to lose him, spending a great deal of time circling the area trying to find him. Had they been able to telepathically link to Sanchez, that it seems very unlikely that they would lose him. Unless, of course, that link is only established when the visitors are able to see the witnesses. To me, Sanchez's case almost feels like a strange game of cat and mouse, and I was left to wonder if the entire event was designed as an experiment to gauge the fear reaction of Sanchez. Maybe the visitors knew exactly where he was in the field. Maybe they were the ones who kept having him return. And maybe they had, in a sense, programmed him to return the very next night to continue their experiment. When they were done, they simply moved their craft, allowing him to leave. Granted, I'm just speculating. It's possible that they had every intention of abducting him on the second night, and who knows, maybe they did. See, the one thing about Sanchez's experience that really stands out to me is what happened on the first night, when Sanchez returned home. It was noted that he was behaving oddly, even skipping dinner. In many abductee reports, they describe feeling ill, feeling thirsty after they are returned. I do wonder if something else may have happened to Sanchez on that first night. He recalls seeing one of the beings pointing at him, followed by them leaving. But is that what really happened? Given that these events happened nearly 50 years ago, I doubt we'll ever know. 
anyways, that's this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed. Hi, I'm Mr. Black. In this video, I'm going to be discussing three cases involving strange creatures, including a dragonfly man, a grizzly bear man, and a weird grasshopper jumping thing that I don't really know what to call it. A witness, D, who was then only five years old, recalls a bizarre experience she had while picnicking with her family in New York State Park in the summer of 1967. In a bid for some privacy, her mother had chosen an area of the park that was tucked into a spot surrounded by thick forest. At some point during the day, Dee recalls that she and her older sister left to use the toilet facility. She remembered that as they walked away from the picnic spot, the trees and grass suddenly got more dense and thick until their picnic area was no longer visible through the foliage. It was almost immediately after losing sight of her parents that things would take a turn for the weird. Dee claims that her memory at this point suddenly blanks. The next thing she recalled was walking into a clearing in the forest. In the center of the clearing, she observed a huge round gray boulder or rock. Sitting atop the boulder was what appeared to be a giant human-sized dragonfly, a dragonfly man. She became paralyzed looking at this entity and it stared back at her. She noted that the head of the creature was the size of her head. It had big black eyes that appeared to shine. While it sat there, the wings on it were stretched out and going slowly up and down. The wings stretched out about three feet in each direction and were glistening green, red, and blue and appeared, quote, clear as the sky. She isn't exactly sure how long they stared at each other, though she senses that it was less than three minutes. Whatever this thing was, it frightened her and she felt she needed to get away. When she turned to scream and run, she noticed that her mother was on the left and her sister was on the right, just outside the clearing in the woods. Strangely, both were standing frozen with their backs to the clearing. She ran over and shook her mother's hand several times and got her to move, like she had snapped out of a trance. She begged her mother to follow her back to the clearing, but when they got there, nothing was there not even the rock. The rest of the day, all the grown-ups at the picnic seemed to be in an almost trance-like state, acting strangely and constantly talking about the drifting clouds and the breezy, windy weather. Albert Rosales spoke to the witness directly about this incident, and he believes that, despite her age, she was being truthful about what happened. Her memory of that day and all of its strangeness is still quite vivid all these years later. 
there are things about this case that really stick out to me. I think maybe that this might have been an instance of a screen memory. The the rock she saw might not have been a rock. Might have been a I don't know, possibly a UFO or something that she had stumbled upon. I do find it interesting that the witness said that her mother and her sister were standing outside the clearing in a with their backs turned in like a trance-like state. That to me suggests that there was a lot more going on that day than what she could remember. Um, maybe the whole group were abducted. I don't know. The whole thing is so strange, and but it does to me sound like it was a, like a mass abduction event, given that everyone else around that day was acting so strangely. But I, on the other hand, I don't know. In the next case, I'm going to be talking about a man claims that he encountered a weird grizzly bear-like entity. It was 1968. Brian Birch, his wife, their three young children, and Brian's mother were on the way to Brian's brother's house in the countryside of Devonshire. It was around 1 a.m., and his children and mother were asleep in the back seat. After passing the town of Honiton, they turned down a long straight road that stretched way ahead of them. It was a narrow road with grass verges on both sides and lots of flat farmland. Brian recalls they were approaching a 90 degree bend in the road that passed over a small hump bridge over a railway line. He had his headlights on full beam on the approach to that bridge when he saw what he thought initially was a large badger by its ambling gate along the short grassy embankment on the right-hand side of the road. As they drew close to it and got ready to pass it, Brian suddenly realized this was no badger. It was something he'd never seen before. A huge creature slowly stood upright, standing on its hind legs. It turned to face them. Brian was confused. At first glance, this thing looked like a grizzly bear. It even had the same gait as a grizzly bear. Its arms and legs, the whole body in fact, looked positively grizzly bear-like. But the face was wrong. Brian focused on the creature's face and the features, unlike the muzzle of a grizzly bear, appeared flat and decidedly pink, almost human-like. He had the impression of a pink sponge-like face, like a bath sponge. He knew instantly that this was no grizzly bear. He had no idea what it was. His brief examination of the creature was interrupted by a loud scream. It was his wife. What is that? she screamed, startling Brian and everyone else in the car. Brian instinctively swerved to the left-hand side of the road to avoid passing close to the creature, which she referred to as grotesque. Brian now floored the gas pedal momentarily before they came to the 90-degree turn over the small humpback bridge that passed over the railway. For the rest of that journey, he dreaded the possibility of encountering that strange creature one more time, but luckily they didn't see it again. Neither did he ever see it again during his countless drives through the area. Albert Rosales also reached out to Brian Birch about his bizarre encounter. Even today, he has no idea what he and his wife encountered on that lonely stretch of road. In 1986, 
in Rio Grande Norte, Brazil, a family encountered a bizarre creature that left them terrified. Anacho Esti Machado, his wife, oldest daughter, and his two-year-old daughter, which Anacho carried in his arms, were returning home from a neighbor's house after watching a popular soap opera. In order to get back to their house, they had to traverse a very dark and isolated dirt road. Anacho's wife was the first to notice a strange noise, and she thought that somebody was following them on the road. Inacio noted that his wife was growing increasingly more disturbed, and he had them stop walking a couple of times to see if they could hear somebody behind them, but they couldn't. They carried on walking, and soon Inacio too began to hear the noise. He became convinced that somebody or something was following them. Inacio decided to have his family stop. He walked back down the road, hoping to figure out what was going on. As his wife and oldest daughter stood talking, Anaccio wandered further down the road, all while carrying his two-year-old in his arms. As he stood looking around, Anaccio was stunned when a strange creature suddenly appeared from the woods on the side of the road. He described the creature as between three and four feet tall, walking on two legs and wearing a very tight-fitting black coverall. It had an abundance of stringy black hair on its head, which covered its face. It advanced towards Anacho using strange hopping motions resembling that of a grasshopper. The creature approached him and attempted to snatch his daughter out of his arms. Anacho jumped back and threw a couple of wild punches at the strange creature, which quickly jolted back. At this point, Anacho's wife and oldest daughter who had wandered down the road towards him, took notice of the creature and both screamed in terror. For whatever reason, the sound of their screams seemed to startle the entity, which turned and ran off into a field, emitting a loud buzzing sound. They watched as it effortlessly jumped a nearby barbed wire fence and disappeared quickly into the brush. Anaccio was convinced that the strange creature was trying to grab his youngest daughter from his arms, though he did not know why. Over the course of the next several days, Anaccio felt as though he was being watched from behind the bushes as he walked to and from work. This case was reported to and investigated by Ekip Upern, a Brazilian-based UFO organization. October 10, 1962, the San Francisco Examiner ran a story so bizarre, even Rod Serling would be impressed. Tim Beckley's INS newsletter summarized the case, 
referring to it as simply the Batman cometh. According to the story, residents living in a California city reported sighting something very strange emerge from a circling plane. It began on the afternoon of October 9, 1962. Residents living in the heavily populated Tracy, California took notice of a plane that seemed to be circling the skies northwest of the city. To them, it looked like a military plane, though none of them knew for sure. As it continued to make its passes, it began to release objects. Two of the objects, the witnesses noted, appeared to be parachutes. Then something emerged from a plane that none of them could believe. A large object that, to them, looked like a dark human with large wings. They likened it to the DC Comics superhero, Batman. According to the witnesses, this Batman seemed to glide at a high speed over the city, eventually vanishing out of sight, heading south-southwest. Onlookers were left stunned. Had they really seen a man with wings fly over their city? No surprise, this sparked multiple calls to the local police and the Air Force. Despite searching, local law enforcement found no signs of parachutes or anything else that might have indicated that something had been dropped from the plane. They simply had no explanation for the sightings. Regarding the Air Force, despite there being four major bases in Northern California, none could offer any explanation and all denied any knowledge of a Batman. Stockton Field, Tracy Airport, and the Federal Aviation Agency's Air Traffic Center were also asked about the incident and none could offer any explanation for what was cited. While some skeptics would suggest that the witnesses were merely influenced by what they had seen on TV, most notably Adam West's Batman TV show, they'd be wrong. West's Batman didn't air until 1966, so that explanation flies out the window, pun intended. Another possible explanation might be the military was testing out wingsuits in 1962. This would not be out of the realm of possibility, as 19-year-old Rex Finney of Los Angeles, California, was said to have used a variation of a wingsuit all the way back in the 1930s, and some airshow stuntmen were also noted to have used them in the 1920s and 30s. Granted, I have not been able to find any reports of the military using wingsuits in the 1960s, but it is possible. Beckley, in his write-up, suggested, not surprisingly, that the Batman sighted over Tracy might have been connected to the UFO phenomenon, and the odd plane sighted wasn't actually a plane at all. To make his case, he cited numerous other instances in which these bat-like humanoids were sighted over cities, including a couple of cases going back to the late 1800s. 
In Fordian literature, you will find reports of strange, unmarked planes dropping phantom parachutes, in one instance enough to fill an entire sky. Curiously, none of these parachutes ever seem to land. In another report, a plane was said to have released other planes somehow. Yes, it really happened. On August 29, 1952, the Associated Press ran a bizarre story that was said to have occurred in the skies over London. It was August 28, 1952, London, England. Three friends going about their day looked skyward at a passing plane, a rather mundane sight even for 1952, though what happened next would leave them in a state of shock. As the seemingly normal plane passed overhead, it slowly began to give birth, as it were, to a trio of planes. As reported to the Ministry of Civil Aviation, the three friends noted that this high-flying plane suddenly disgorged, via an opening, a plane, then another, and then another. All three of these ejected planes then seemed to shoot off in different directions over London. In responding to the report, the Civil Aviation Authority noted, We have no information of anything in the air which could bear any relation to the report. This account is quite bizarre, especially for 1952. Even today, I'm only aware of one plane, the Galaxy, that is large enough to carry a plane a single plane, not three. What if what these three friends saw over London was not actually a plane at all, but something else? There are hundreds of reports of large UFOs discharging smaller ones, sometimes over large cities. Makes me wonder. I figured I'd leave off with another really strange case, this one from Texas. In 1973, Myron, then a teenager, his brother and two friends were returning home from a karate tournament one evening. They were near an airport in Moulton, Texas, driving down an expansive road next to the runway. The carload of boys suddenly took notice of a strange object coming over top of the car, heading towards the airport. To them, this object appeared to be landing on the runway. As it passed over, Myron and his friends looked up and saw in the interior of the craft two figures were visible. As Myron recalls, one was a man in a uniform, quote, a regular commander or military representative with full military garb. The other did not appear to be human at all. Myron claims that it was a small, non-human entity. Myron likened the being to what we now know as a gray. Large black eyes, thin body, big head, etc. All four boys in the vehicle observed these two figures. They pulled over to the side of the road and exited the vehicle to watch as the object landed on the runway. Myron claims that as they stood there watching, they were suddenly overwhelmed with a feeling of fear, a sense that they might be in danger. Without saying a word, they immediately turned and went back to the car and quickly left the area. Myron's brother, to this day, will not speak of the incident.
Another fellow that was in the car that evening became a total recluse in the years that followed. August 6, 1977, Tom Dawson, a 63-year-old retired car seller, was walking his dog, Old John, on his small farm, doing his routine checks, when his attention was called to a bright flash of light. Suddenly, a strange circular-shaped machine descended directly in front of him and hovered two feet off the ground. Not surprisingly, Dawson became frightened and felt an immediate desire to run back to his house, but found he couldn't move. Somehow he was completely paralyzed. Even stranger, as he peered around, he noticed that the cattle and even his own dog were similarly affected, all standing completely frozen, quote, like a still picture. He continued to watch as the object hovered just above the ground, taking in its features. To him, it appeared to be about 30 feet in diameter, was dish-shaped with a bulge in the center, quote, like two saucers stuck together. There were a row of small ports about six inches in diameter that ran around the outer rim, and he could see a brilliant light inside. A small protrusion on one end of the craft reminded him of an antenna. His observation of the craft was soon interrupted by a new and even more frightening development. Suddenly, a hatch opened, and a ramp was extended. Six strange-looking humans standing about five feet tall emerged from the interior. Four men and two women. One of the men and one of the women were completely nude. The others were dressed completely alike in what he termed, quote, beautiful clothing. Aside from the two naked ones, Dawson was able to determine their sexes from the general build of their bodies. Their two-piece outfits were made of shimmering material that changed in bluish-green hues as light reflected upon them, and they reminded him of uniforms with neither masculine nor feminine identification. Their shoes, different from their uniforms, seemed to be made of a silk material, and the toes of the shoes turned upward. Their skin was white as flower sacks. Their noses were sharp and turned up. They had pointed ears and their heads were sitting right on their shoulders, no necks, Dawson noted. The first one, appearing to be the leader, had stepped onto the ground as though testing its solidity, and then motioned to the others to follow. At that point, two more men came from the craft's hatch and took positions at the entrance, appearing to be guards. Then two women followed. The last person emerging from the craft carried a contraption which reminded him of a hula hoop. It was connected to a kind of skull cap by a series of cords. The hoop contained dials from which they took readings after placing the cap on Dawson's head. At the same time, Dawson could only watch in horror as the visitors pulled down his trousers 
and lifted his shirt over his head, passing the hoop up and down his body. He began to understand that they were performing some kind of examination on him, and sensed that they were somehow reading his mind. They next attached small suction cup devices like rubber and of a bright orange color to various parts of his body from his legs upward to his chest. Throughout the bizarre examination, Dawson claims that he felt no pain. In fact, after they put the skull cap on him, he lost most of his fear, almost as if he had been given a tranquilizer. At that point, an even stranger development occurred. Just as the visitors jerked the skull cap from his head, Dawson began to hear a loud voice emanating from the interior of the ship. He could make out the words somewhat clearly, a panicked voice screaming for help. It kept saying, I am Jimmy Hoffa. I am Jimmy Hoffa. Won't somebody help me? I am Jimmy Hoffa. I am... A fourth try at shouting his name was cut off, and the voice was silenced, as though somebody had placed a hand over the victim's mouth. With that, the five beings hastily withdrew and walked hurriedly toward the craft, carrying the unfolded, examining device with the wires and suction cups trailing behind. Then they huddled into a tight group, now and then turning their heads and looking at Tom's direction. Once they had removed the cap, his fear once again returned, and he became even more apprehensive as he sensed they were deciding whether or not they should take him. As they chatted, he could hear their voices, which he described as, quote, very high and shrill. While he did not understand their language, he was able to make out one distinct word, Jupiter. Ultimately, they decided against taking him. They broke up their huddle and made for their ship. They seemed to half leap and half float upward into the hatch of the machine. The object began slowly moving upward at an angle until it was about 75 feet in altitude, when it just vanished, quote, with a wink. Dawson soon found that he could move again. As he began to hastily redress himself, he noted that the cattle were also moving again, and his dog, Old John, was barking wildly and running in a circle around the landing spot. Investigators spoke with Linda Colby, Dawson's next-door neighbor, to whose house he ran to after the encounter. Miss Colby insisted that when he arrived, he tried to relate his experience, but was, quote, too excited to talk. It took him a few minutes to recover his composure, at which point he led her to the spot where the event took place. Colby noted that she could not discern any markings on the ground, though she was willing to testify to the reputation of Tom Dawson. She described him as a sober, hard-working man who attended church regularly and who refrained from using alcohol or drugs of any kind. He didn't even smoke. He says it happened to him, and I believe him, she told investigators. Interestingly, things would take an even more bizarre turn, not only for Tom Dawson, but his neighbor as well. Soon after the experience, both Dawson and Colby were visited by a small group of people who identified themselves as UFO investigators. This group included men and women. They spoke with Dawson and Colby wanting to know the details of that evening. Afterwards, they went to the location of the landing and conducted, from what Colby could tell, a very thorough examination. Colby recalled that they had identified themselves as being with MUFOC, M-U-F-O-C, and she had actually written it down in expectation of reaching out to them at a later point.
The investigators looking into the Tom Dawson case thought Colby may have confused the group's name with the more famous MUFON, but she was certain of the last initial. She even deduced that it must represent a group known as the Macon UFO Club, since one of them told her he was from Macon County, Georgia. Colby further noted that they took samples of the soil and made radiation readings, but reported to her that they found nothing unusual, though they did suggest that they would conduct further investigations on the ground samples at their facility. No members of the group wore uniforms, and Colby presumed that they were from a civilian club, though they did not appear to her to be native Georgians. To Colby, they all had uniform, quote, olive-colored skin, and appeared, quote, foreign, possibly Mexican. Neither Dawson nor Colby ever heard from them again, and apparently the organization MUFOC, or the Macon UFO Club, did not exist. Whomever these people were, they were not with any known UFO group operating in the area, and their findings with regard to the ground samples and readings were never made public. Tom Dawson's alien encounter is not unlike so many others reported in the past 100 years. What makes it stand out to myself and the investigators at the time was not what happened to Dawson on that evening, but what he overheard. A male voice coming from inside the craft insisting that they were Jimmy Hoffa, pleading for help. Curiously, on July 30, 1975, Union boss Jimmy Hoffa disappeared from a restaurant in suburban Detroit under circumstances that have never been fully determined. He was an important figure and his disappearance was prominent in the news. In fact, more than a million dollars in manpower and other resources were expended in the search for Hoffa, which turned up nothing. Dawson himself acknowledged that he was familiar with the news reports detailing the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa and had heard his voice, but was uncertain given the passage of time if the voice he heard that night was indeed the Teamster boss. He could not describe the voice emanating from the craft other than it being of average tone, though somewhat raised and pleading. Investigators noted that while they cannot prove that Dawson heard the voice of Jimmy Hoffa that night, they do find it interesting that the beings seemed to react to it. If the voice was not that of Jimmy Hoffa, this would indicate that the occupants deliberately used deception in creating the impression that the missing Teamster boss was aboard their craft. But their appearance of being startled when the voice began shouting indicates the interruption was unexpected. Further, it was so off-putting to the beings that they immediately cut short their examination of Dawson and prepared to leave. Gray Barker, who wrote of the case for the UFO Review, noted, It is possible that the members of MUFOC, an apparent civilian group that may have been from Macon County, Georgia, did collect meaningful evidence while traces were fresh, but inquiries have failed to disclose any such organization in that area. Miss Colby's description of the visitors as, quote, foreign-looking also raises suspicions that they may not have been whom they claim to be. Tom Dawson himself told investigators that he had never spoken to the police about the incident and only called the newspaper because he was hoping they could help him explain what he saw and heard on that evening. Due to ridicule from people in the community, Dawson rarely spoke of the incident and wished that it never happened, and that everyone would just forget about it.
This case was related to UFO PLAS investigator back in 1964 and was featured in the third edition of the Panorama magazine. The witness was a religious man with a keen interest in electronics. The experience occurred when he was still very young, all the way back in 1911 in Gumaracha, Australia. Gumaracha is only a few miles from Adelaide. His father owned a farm there, and the witness was milking some cows. He recalls that he had just finished filling two buckets of milk when he was getting ready to pick them up to place them on a nearby stand. It was while carrying them, he suddenly felt a sharp pain in his head. After carefully placing the buckets down, he put his hand to his head in the spot where the pain was flaring. It was then he observed, in front of him, some distance away, a disc-shaped object. It was about ten feet across and was silvery and glowing like the moon. He watched it for some fifteen seconds, and then it rose into the air and disappeared at a very high rate of speed into the horizon. Soon after, the sharp pain he felt dissipated. At the time, he had no idea what flying saucers were and had not a clue what he had observed that day, though he suspected that the object, whatever it was, was somehow responsible for the momentary pain he felt. He told no one of the experience, fearing ridicule from his peers. It was many, many years later when he felt comfortable enough to relate his strange sighting. The investigator who was told of the experience noted that the case proves that the phenomenon had been around for a very, very long time. Gumaracha was also the setting for another equally bizarre UFO incident. This one happened in 1984 and was referenced in the Australasian Post, November 29, 1984. UFO investigator Colin Norris spoke to the witness and put her in contact with reporter Wayne Lowen for the article. Mrs. Jake Kowalski was driving her four children home at 7.50 one night in 1984 in Gumaracha when they observed an aircraft they took to be a low-flying helicopter. It was the size of a Boeing 707 and lacked the obvious things our aircraft have. It made no noise whatsoever except a swoosh. There was a large light hanging on a dome underneath and it seemed to be on an extendable arm. It was very, very bright and there were lots of lights on the undercarriage. Kowalski claimed she stopped the car and she and the children got out. Kowalski wanted to get a better look at the object. It was a silver-blue metallic color, unlike anything I have ever seen, she recalled. I can't relate it to anything I know. Obviously, it was observing us, and it was coming closer, and I think it would have landed if I hadn't run away. While she did not feel threatened in that moment, she did sense that it would be in her best interest to gather the children and leave the area, which she did. It's interesting to think what might have happened to Kowalski and her children had they chosen to remain, especially if this craft did indeed land as she suspected it might have. In February 1987, something was tracked on radar in Alaska that officials had trouble explaining away. This account appeared in the April 7, 1978 edition of the Tacoma, Washington News Tribune. 
It began on the evening of February 16, 1978, when personnel at a radar installation observed, quote, five round glowing objects that appeared to hover, then zip back and forth at incredible speed. This occurred over the desolate Samia Island, part of the Aleutian chain in Alaska. An unidentified crew member of the C-141 Air Force plane flying nearby related the bizarre incident to the newspaper. He noted that he and his crew had not personally observed the objects. We had landed our cargo and had taken off on the return flight when we got a call from the controller on Samia. The tower controller informed the C-141 crew that UFOs had followed them. They apparently, quote, changed color from red to orange to violet and moved faster than any aircraft. Then unidentified blips suddenly appeared on the base radar screens. They also appeared to hover and would disappear and reappear suddenly. If that wasn't strange enough, at the same time the objects were being seen and tracked, an earthquake suddenly shook the island. It appeared strongest near the highly classified Cobra Dane radar installation. When the ground stopped moving, the glowing objects were gone and the radar screens were clear, the witness told this to the newspaper. The Alaska Air Defense Command confirmed the incident in a report writing, on the evening of February 16, 1978, there was an earth tremor measured at 4.0 to 4.2 on the Richter scale that shook the Cobra Dane and other facilities on the Samia Air Force Base, located near the tip of the Aleutian Island chain. As the tremor occurred, some Samia personnel ran from the buildings and thought they saw bright lights hovering over the island. A check of the Samia radar verified that there were unidentified blips on the radar screen. Curiously, in the weeks that followed, the Air Force launched an investigation that attempted to explain away the events of that February evening. The results were as laughable as you might expect. The bright lights witnessed by the personnel zipping about in the sky, they explained, were actually planets and stars. They further determined that waves from the ocean were responsible for the radar captures. So, essentially, they weren't even trying. So were waves and planets responsible for the events of that February evening? Or is there a more out-of-this-world explanation? I want to get away from the UFO topic for a bit and talk about another strange case I read recently that happened in the woods of Ohio. It involved a strange smell, a strange creature, and a period of missing time. It was November 2019, Thompson, Ohio. A witness claims he was visiting his aunt's house when her pooch, Penny, somehow got out of the yard. A hunting party was soon assembled, consisting of the young witness, his sister, and the aunt. They each grabbed a flashlight and headed out into the dark stretch of woods behind her home. They determined that splitting up would be the best way to cover more acres. Despite only looking away for a brief moment, the witness had gone deeper into the tree line than he realized and suddenly found himself in a spot of forest he was not familiar with. As he attempted to get his bearings, he suddenly got whiffed of a strange smell, a type of electrical discharge he likened to the smell of static. 
To make matters worse, his flashlight began to dim. Lost and with a dimming flashlight, the witness began to feel uneasy. He hollered out for his aunt and sister, though, to his surprise, he received no reply. They weren't that far away. How could they not hear him? As he walked around looking for the tree line, he began to hear the cracking of twigs and branches. It was footsteps, two feet walking. Somebody was coming through the woods in his direction. He assumed that it was his aunt or sister coming to check on him. Spinning around, the witness claims he saw something absolutely terrifying. There, in the darkness of the woods, he made out a thin, stick-like figure. It was running at him, its arms waving wildly. He likened its movements to one of those balloon statues you see fluttering outside of a car dealership. The witness became terrified and began to run. He ran as fast as he could, eventually finding himself out of the woods. He claims that he collapsed and fell unconscious, possibly due to overexertion. When he finally woke up, he was sitting in his parents' car as they drove home. He never told them about what he saw that day. Later, he confided in his aunt the events of that evening. While she had no explanation for what he experienced, she did relate some interesting details, including that prior to their visit, they had also had strange things happen in those woods. For instance, the uncle also got lost, and similarly, he smelled a strange electrical smell. He managed to find his way out before anything else happened, though. The aunt admitted to having seen something in the woods once, and she also confessed to having smelled that static smell while searching for Penny that night. Ultimately, Penny was found, and the events of that evening remain a mystery. Halloween is a special time for young people, the one night of the year that they get to dress up as their favorite movie, video game, or comic book characters, and wander the streets with like-minded youngsters collecting candy from strangers with smiling faces. For Maureen Smith, a Halloween night in the 1970s would be one she would never forget, for it was the night she discovered that monsters really do exist. Maureen, then 12, was excited about the prospect of going trick-or-treating with her brother and two cousins. Her parents' house in England was about two doors down from the bottom of a street, at which stood a small field with shed-style garages sitting at the top end. The streets in her neighborhood were fairly narrow. You couldn't double-park a car, she remembered. As Maureen waited for her father to put a string through her lantern, her impatient brother and cousins started off down the street, beginning their night of fun. I could hear them going into the street, leaving me behind. Dad got the string sorted and lit my candle, and I was away, out to join my siblings. I walked to the bottom of the street and couldn't see my family, but I could hear their muffled voices, 
and voices of other kids from our streets. Maureen claims she went out to the field, which was partially obscured by the garages, and observed a kind of shimmer around the edge, like a fog. The air felt heavy and thick, she recalled. She could still hear the muffled voices, but no one was in sight. She kept walking, looking about. Where had they all gone? Now standing between two garages, Maureen suddenly felt as though she was being watched. She turned to her left and saw something straight out of a horror movie. Only this was real. This was not some kid in a costume. This thing was real, and it was standing next to her. The best word she could find to describe it was gargoyle. Its eyes were sort of pearl-colored. It was probably a foot taller than me. We looked at each other, and that's it. That's all I can remember. Maureen's next conscious memory was waking up in her parents' kitchen in her armchair. Her lantern, which was still lit, was sitting on the table. There's another account from Alton, Illinois, involving a young girl and a gargoyle-like creature. Some of my longtime listeners might remember it. Mary Ledbetter claims that in the late 1960s, when she was around six years old, she was with a group of children playing in the woods when she had her encounter. Mary claims that she and some friends were running to their clubhouse when Mary fell behind. She was suddenly stopped in her tracks by something that grabbed her by the back of her head. She swung around and was confronted by a creature she described as a cross between a gargoyle, a bat, and a devil. It paralyzed her where she stood. None of her friends, who were well ahead of her on the trail, stopped to check on her. They just carried on. Mary claims the creature was inside her mind, reading her thoughts. She got the sense that it was looking for information pertaining to technology. After it was done with her, it released her. She ran off to be with her friends. I've never remembered anything about that day until I was well into my 40s. My hopes are one day to be hypnotized to see if I have any memories of this gargoyle thing's technology. Because as he was reading my brain, I could see his too. So that being said, there's no telling what memory of its technology I have. Both of these cases involve very young girls. They were with a group of friends, other children, and at the moment they fell behind and were left alone, this apparent gargoyle-like entity pounced. In the first case, the girl was left with missing time. In the second case, Mary's full memory of the incident did not return until 40 years later. The witness in the second case claims that it opened a type of two-way telepathic communication that allowed her to see into its mind as he looked into hers, as if the creature was unable to have that link go only one way. Surely it would not want her seeing what it knew. Granted, it did seem able to wipe her memory, so maybe it just didn't care. In 1934, young Juan Rivera Felberti was flying a kite in a field outside of the town of Mayacus in Puerto Rico, when he suddenly felt something pulling on his kite. Looking up, he was surprised to see a silvery sphere about 20 feet in diameter, hovering almost directly over top of him. As he stared up at it, a beam of light exploded out of the object and moved directly at the witness, 
and began to float upwards into the craft. He was lowered into the sphere via an opening at the top. Inside he saw a man wearing a dark green tight-fitting outfit sitting at a control panel, which had a shiny crystal resembling an emerald. Next to him stood a blonde girl with rosy skin and wearing a silvery outfit. She looked very young. She was holding Juan's kite in her hands. He was then taken into another room by the girl and shown a box that emitted certain images. The girl then showed Juan a little box full of colored buttons and asked him if he wanted to play with it. She then pressed some of the buttons on the box and suddenly a cloud of spiraling smoke came out of it. The smoke took the form of a, quote, monkey-like creature. Soon more of these strange creatures took shape in the haze. Next the girl asked Juan if he wanted to trade his kite for the box, and he, without hesitation, agreed. Eventually Juan was deposited back onto the field. He landed on the ground with enough force that it twisted his ankle. The object zipped away. Juan returned home with the strange box. He kept it for several weeks. He managed to figure out the combination of buttons pushed, allowing for the monkeys to appear. At times he would entertain his friends by showing them these strange monkey creatures. The friends just assumed that it was some kind of a magic trick. Curiously, while his friends could clearly see the creatures, the grown-ups couldn't. It was these monkey creatures that ultimately led Juan to get rid of the box. He noted that they were uncontrollable, and after some time, they had all escaped from his room. One day, Juan decided that he'd had enough. He walked out to a nearby mountain with a shovel and buried it. Juan admits that the monkeys that had escaped from his room were probably still roaming around the forests of Puerto Rico even today. In an interesting coincidence, sometime in the late 1940s or early 1950s, monkeys were suddenly being sighted in the forests of Puerto Rico, even though they were not native to the area. The explanation given for the sudden appearance of the monkeys was that some had escaped from research laboratories. Granted, Juan's monkeys were only visible to a certain age group, apparently. And I have not been able to track down any Puerto Rican phantom monkey encounters circa the 1930s so who knows. Juan would go on to have other encounters with the visitors, though none were as bizarre as his experience in 1934. Personally, I found this account fascinating, as it is one of the few cases I've read about in which the beings allowed the abductee to actually keep an item that might prove their existence. Recently, Albert Rosales sent me other cases involving strange boxes which were gifted to people by the visitors. The outcomes of these cases are as bizarre as you might expect, including one in which a woman was able to raise her deceased father from the dead. In June of 1965, Jim Cumber, then 16, and his family were on vacation at the Bottomless Lake State Park, just east of Roswell in New Mexico, 
The lights from Roswell and Walker Air Force Base to the west were visible from their campsite. Cumber was fascinated by the stars and, as an amateur astronomer, he owned a three-inch Newtonian reflector telescope, though because he was on vacation, all he had with him was a pair of 7x50 binoculars. As he peered into the sky with said binoculars, he spotted what appeared to be a satellite moving in his direction. As it passed directly overhead, I zeroed in on it with my binoculars. I continued to watch as it moved directly between two small stars and stopped dead between them. It didn't slow, it just stopped and hung there, dead still, for several seconds. Then it went out, as if someone had turned off a light switch. It was at this moment Cumber realized that the object he was looking at couldn't have been a satellite. Then, within about 15 minutes, four jet fighters appeared on the scene. Cumber watched from the ground as the jets appeared to perform a grid pattern over the area where the object had been. Through his binoculars, Cumber saw one of the pairs reach the exact area where the mysterious craft had vanished. This is when things got very, very strange. As this pair of aircraft passed through where the UFO had disappeared, the wingman, to the right of the element leader, flew directly through the point where the UFO had vanished, and he vanished as well. I was watching through the binoculars, and the wingman disappeared as if someone had flipped a switch. No navigation lights and no engine exhaust. The element leader flew on for perhaps one or two miles before he apparently noticed his wingman was gone. Then his afterburners bloomed, and he dove straight for Walker Air Force Base at full burner, straight in, with no approach circle. I looked up and saw all the other aircraft do exactly the same thing. They lit their burners and dove directly for Walker Air Force Base. Forget the approach pattern, within five minutes there wasn't a plane left in the sky. Cumber continued to watch the area intently to see if the missing jet fighter would reappear. It never did. This sighting would ignite in Jim Cumber an obsessive interest in the UFO topic. He would eventually go on to become the MUFON State Section Director of Utah. Even today, though, he wonders about the jet he saw that day. What happened to that aircraft near Roswell in 1965? Occasionally, even now, more than 30 years after the incident, I wake up at night with that very burning question in my mind. Seeing a jet fighter simply vanish before my eyes is something I'll never forget. I have discussed other cases where planes uh, go towards a UFO and then they simply vanish. Um, the Frederick Valenta case, I discussed another case that happened in Sarnia. There are these cases where jets attempt to intercept a UFO and then they, they don't explode, there's nothing, it's just like they're, they blipped out. In this case, the UFO did, like vanished I, and then this jet went, you know, in its path, and he also vanished. The, the pilot of the, uh, the jet uh, vanished also. So it kind of makes you, did, was there like a, like a doorway open, a portal or something that it went into, and then when the jet came in behind it, it kind of like did the same. It followed it into this place. It, it's I don't know. May 17, 1973, Altura Azul 
Buenos Aires, Argentina. As people gather to the festival of Dia de Amarta, or Day of the Armed Forces, several high-ranking army members and their families were traveling from the capital to buy a Blanco in the Bristol Skyvan aircraft with a capacity for 25 persons. Total flight plan was for five hours and 30 minutes. The speed of the aircraft was around 400 kilometers per hour and weather was excellent. At one point, the pilots, including Captain D'Agostino, began to see a strange object approaching, traveling towards the southwest, emitting a luminous circular glow towards the bow of the aircraft. Radio communications with Aziza Tower informed them that there wasn't any other traffic in the area. When the pilots changed their radio frequency, the object suddenly shot towards the bow of the aircraft and then immediately moved away causing sudden radio interference. At 20 kilometers southeast of the town of Oliveria, the UFO reappeared and moved closer to the aircraft's bow section. It then disappeared again, leaving in its place a sort of small cloud. Within minutes, the radio on the aircraft stopped functioning, and soon they had entered the small cloud. The pilots and the occupants were able to see the stars and the ground lights but they realized to their horror that the aircraft was somehow detained in midair and that it wasn't moving. For 90 minutes, this uncanny scenario played out not far from the city of Duruana. Despite their repeated efforts, the Zaiza control tower were never able to make contact with the plane during this time period. At some point, the strange cloud began to disperse and they were able to see that they were moving again and they were able to re-establish contact with the Ziza Tower. The celebrations in Baya Blanco had been postponed since everyone assumed that the aircraft had suffered some kind of mishap. Incredibly, when they arrived at their destination, it was 8.15 p.m., when they should have arrived at 6.15 p.m. Despite the nearly two-hour time discrepancy, the passengers and the pilots felt that they had been stuck in the holding pattern for, at most, 30 minutes. It remains unclear why they felt this and what else might have occurred in that period of missing time. Curiously, according to military sources, there have been several Argentine Air Force planes and UFO confrontations over the area around the time of this incident. In an interview conducted years later, Captain D'Agostino confirmed the bizarre events of May 17, 1973 in an interview with Argentinian researcher H. Roberto. If you're watching this channel, there's a, probably a very good likelihood that you are also a fan of X-Files. For me, one of my favorite episodes, or episodes I guess, was uh, a two-parter called Tempest Fugit. And it was about, it was about this, essentially what happened was they were, Mulder and Scully were investigating this uh, plane crash. And at the time they, they kind of realized that there was uh, a UFO had crashed around the same area and they began to kind of like put two and two together and that something might have happened with the this jet turns out that there was um, an abductee an alien abductee was aboard this uh, jet passenger jet and during the flight um the the ufo basically abducts the passenger out of this moving plane and it kind of like locks them in this sort of uh I don't know, tractor beam type thing, but it was like, it basically holds the uh, plane in place, removes the passenger from the plane, 
does whatever it does, puts them back, and then at that point, uh, a U.S. jet with orders to shoot down uh, whatever, the UFO, appears on the scene and it shoots the UFO, which for because of this, it ends up releasing its grasp of the plane, and they both plunge to the ground. And like Mulder says, if they would not attack the plane, there's, I mean, the UFO, there's a very good chance that the passenger would have been put back on the plane, and all the passengers on board would have been, had their memories wiped. So they just would have been this period of missing time. So when I read this case, I was like floored at how similar these accounts are, except that in this case, you don't have, there's this period of missing time that the passengers can't account for, which is very similar to what happened in the episode, if, if the man had been placed back on the plane. So it sounds to me like this case is an actual uh, incident where this uh, UFO abducted uh, probably people off this plane in flight, which is crazy. But that's sort of, that sounds like what happened. And I, I, like I said, I was floored at how similar it was to this episode of uh, X-Files. Kind of makes you wonder if uh, Carter got his idea from that. Over the years, I've discussed numerous cases involving encounters with men in black, a shadowy group of individuals who exist, seemingly, to silence witnesses to the paranormal. In some instances, their appearance seems to defy logic, as nothing paranormal was experienced by the witness, yet they appear anyway, and their appearance becomes the paranormal experience. In 1978, a man named Derek C. claims that he encountered a man in black on two separate occasions in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. At the time, he recalled that he had to pick up some socks for work. Derek and his wife pulled into the parking lot of an army surplus store. As he was climbing out of his truck, he noticed a strange-looking fellow walking up the steps to the entrance of the store. I noticed because he was walking almost like as if he was a soldier, sort of marching. No one does that. He reached for the handle of the door to the store and pulled away suddenly, just before he would have touched it, about turned, and marched back down the steps. At the time, Derek was interested in the UFO topic and had read numerous books on the subject. He was familiar with the MIB phenomenon. The man was dressed in old-fashioned clothing and a 1950s-era fedora similar to how MIB were said to look. After watching his bizarre behavior and noting how he was dressed, Derek commented to his wife that he thought the man was an MIB. Brushing it off, Derek headed into the store and picked up some socks. From there, they headed over to McDonald's to grab some food. The restaurant was newly constructed and next to a field. 
As they pulled up, Derek and his wife observed the same man walking into the building. To my surprise, there was that guy again, and again he was marching up the steps to the door. He did the same bloody thing, reached for the handle, and suddenly about turned and marched back down the steps. This time it shocked me because he seemed to walk straight for the truck. At this point, Derek claims the strange man veered to the left and began walking into the field, which headed toward the number one highway, Trans-Canada Highway. He noted that there was an airline's hotel way across on the other side of the field. This is when things got really weird. My wife and I watched as he walked into the darkness of the field. Once he was in the darkness, he began walking very erratically, almost as if he was drunk, but different. He became almost completely hunched over, flailing with his arms, and walking very strangely as if he was struggling. Strange experience. There are numerous accounts of MIBs acting strangely. This involves being unable to eat or walk properly. This account from Canada does seem to line up with so many other reports. On February 15, 2012, a man named Mike, no last name was provided, had entered a Starbucks in Hillsboro, Oregon, where he ran into an old friend. He recalls that they had a nice conversation and then his friend left. Mike elected to stay and read his book. That's when he spotted a strange figure enter the restaurant. I was reading a book and I just look over and there's this guy walking out the door of Starbucks. He looks like he's about 6'2". I'm only catching this from the profile. I didn't see him head on. 6'2". He looked like he weighed about between 135 and 140 pounds. He had a black coat on that went all the way from his neck down to below his ankles. And he had a black hat on. His skin, you know what matte white color looks like, right? Really bright matte white, no gloss, just kind of matted down. I caught him. All I saw was in profile, okay? White, white, like there was no red blood cells. And he had white fuzz on his face. And he wore this black hat. A fedora, like out of the 40s or 50s or something like that. At this point, according to the witness, things took an even stranger turn. Here's the thing that wiped me out about him. I can remember things pretty well. He went in and bought a cup of coffee. He walked out the door, and as he's walking up the street, and instead of holding the coffee like normally you would, like in close to your body or something like that, he was holding it out in front of him, and it looked like, and honest to God, I'm not lying to you, man, it looked like the coffee was dragging him along. It was the most doggone thing. I've never seen anybody carry a cup of coffee like that, you know? It was just so strange. This is but another account of an MIB acting and moving strangely. In June 1950, near Kingman, Arizona, exactly one mile from where a disc-shaped object crashed on May 24, 1953, around the Hualapai Mountain. Another disc-like object was also observed to crash. Townsfolk from Kingman, as well as forestry workers and National Guardsmen, went to the mountain to help with the fire, apparently the result of the crashed object. While fighting the fire, a National Guard captain came upon three, quote, 
strange-looking men in the woods, one of whom was severely burned. The other two were also apparently injured, but not as badly. The captain assisted the two individuals in loading the third individual into the back of a truck while the other two got into the cab with him. He proceeded to drive to the Kingman Hospital. As he pulled up to the front of the building, he observed another strange-looking man standing at the door of an ambulance just outside the entrance to the hospital. One of the individuals in the cab with him said, That looks like our ambulance. The captain thought the whole thing was suspicious and exited the truck. At this point, the captain noted that he began to feel strange, like he was, quote, inebriated. He walked over to the door of the ambulance. The man had gotten inside by then. He asked him, Who are you? The man replied simply, I'm the ambulance driver. There was another strange-looking man sitting in the passenger seat, and the captain asked him, Who are you? That man replied, I'm the intern, and I take care of people when they are in the ambulance. For some reason, the captain accepted this explanation, and he assisted the men in loading up the burned man into the ambulance. The other two individuals also got into the ambulance, and all five drove away from the hospital. The nearest hospital was in Las Vegas, 125 miles away, so it made no sense that they would drive away from the hospital, but that is what happened. The sheriff, Frank Porter, apparently arrived minutes later, screeching into the parking lot. He asked the captain, did you just bring three men down off the mountain? The captain replied, yeah, they just went that way in the ambulance. Porter was gobsmacked. He could not understand what the captain was talking about. Why did they leave the hospital, he asked. The captain had no idea. Porter proceeded to put out an APB and had the town sealed off, but the ambulance and the men were never found. It was as if they had vanished off the face of the earth. Curiously, the captain, as well as other people present outside the hospital that day, had trouble recalling what kind of vehicle it was. They even had trouble remembering if it was even an ambulance at all.